Good evening and thank you all very much for being here. I am Emmanuel Melisaris. I am an associate professor here at uh, LSE Law and I'll be your host this evening. This year's LSE Literary Festival, of which tonight's event is, uh, of course, a part, is about utopias, apropos of the 500th anniversary of Thomas More's Utopia. So let's see what uh, More had to say about lawyers. The utopians have no lawyers among them, for they consider them as a sort of people whose profession it is to disguise matters and to wrest the laws, and therefore they think it is much better that every man should plead his own cause and trust it to the judge, as in other places the client trusts it to a counsellor. By this means, they both cut off many delays and find out truth more certainly. In other words, lawyers are a waste of space. Yes. But he was not particularly uh, kind to leagues of nations either. This is what he had to say about international leagues. As all other nations are perpetually either making leagues or breaking them, the utopians never enter into an alliance with any state. They think leagues are useless things and believe that if the common ties of humanity do not knit men together, the faith of promises will have no great effect. And they are the more confirmed in this by what they see among the nations round about them, who are no strict observers of leagues and treaties. So not much time for international leagues either. So I take it to be conclusive proof that we don't live in a Mauryan utopia, that I'm welcoming you to this trial, uh, complete with a, a judge and a council, and of course a jury, organized by a lawyer producing uh, a university department, LSE Law, and placing on the dock an international league, the United Nations, which has been around for 70 uh, years already. In fact, celebrated its 70th anniversary uh, just a few uh, months ago. And what better way for lawyers to celebrate a 70th birthday but to hold the birthday kid accountable? So uh, we'll be asking uh, what our, our distinguished participants in this trial will be asking what happened to the promises uh, made back in 1945 in the Charter of the United Nations. And there were big, uh, ambitious pledges made in the name of the peoples of the United Nations. Pledges to save us from the scourge of war, to reaffirm faith in human rights and the dignity and worth of all, to promote social progress and better standards of life in conditions of freedom. Have these promises been kept? Have we come closer to... Uh, the utopia that the UN was meant to, to achieve? Or has the, the very existence of the UN had exactly the opposite uh, effect? Indeed, uh, as you will hear, one of the charges tonight is that, and I quote the indictment, the UN has clothed war with a legitimacy that has made extreme violence more palatable and more acceptable to voters in large, powerful, warlike, democratic states. I don't want to take much more of your uh, time uh, within more uh, quotations from great texts of the past, uh, but let me introduce our distinguished uh, guests, whom we are, of course, particularly honored to host. I'm not going to list uh, all of their achievements, because uh, we're going to be here uh, until the UN 71st anniversary, if I do. Uh, so, starting with our uh, judge, uh, Sir Robert Jay. Uh, started practice at the bar in 1983, was appointed QC at a very young age, in 1998, and recorder in 1999. After a particularly distinguished career at the bar, uh, 
during which he also became a bit of a household name uh, with a <laughs> Leveson inquiry uh, into the culture, practices, and ethics of the press, where he was particularly impressive. Uh, he was appointed to the High Court bench in June 2013 and sits in the Queen's Bench Division. Now, counsel for the prosecution uh, are Professor Gary Simpson and Gronje Mellon. Uh, Gary rejoined LSE Law in January 2016 as Chair of Public International Law after having spent some uh, years at the University of Melbourne where he held the Kenneth Bailey Chair of Law, but he couldn't take the heat any longer, so he came back to London. Uh, 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 Gary has written a number of very important texts in international law. His books include uh, Law, War and Crime, War Crimes, Trials and um, the Reinvention of International Law, and a recent collection of essays edited with Kevin Heller entitled The Hidden Histories of War Crimes Trials. He has also recently co-edited a collection of essays entitled Who's Afraid of International Law, which will be published in June this year. Gronje Mellon uh, is a barrister for Garden Court Chambers, just next door here, and also a guest lecturer uh, on the LLM program in employment law and international human rights law at LSE Law. Gronje has a broad public and civil law practice with particular expertise in human rights, law, and discrimination. Now, counsel for the defense. Natalie Samarasinghe is the executive director of the United Nations Association, where she has worked since... 2006. In fact, she was the first woman to uh, hold the post of executive director of UNA UK. Prior to joining UNA UK, Natalie worked in various roles of the public, private, and education sectors, including the university of uh, uh, some university in Oxford. Uh, and she is, I'm, I'm very proud to say, uh, an LSE alumna. Paul Clark is a barrister, also for uh, Garden Court Chambers. And his experience in international law includes pre-trial, trial, and appeal proceedings before international tribunals, the International Criminal Court, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and the Special Court for Sierra Leone. We also have a jury sitting here at the front, uh, not a jury of 12 uh, angry men, uh, a, a, a jury of 12 perhaps mildly irritated women and men, uh, all LSE uh, students and alumni. And uh, let me assure you that uh, the jury was selected in, in complete and blatant violation of the Juries Act 1974. Uh, we, we sent an email round and uh, uh, people volunteered, so we picked some of them. Uh, and we're very thankful that they did. Uh, it is, however, wonderfully representative and international, which is, of course, very fitting given, given the identity of the defendant. Uh, half of our jurors are from the UK and the other half from all over the world. Uh, Hong Kong, Canada, Colombia, India, uh, Italy, Sweden. I hope I'm not missing any. Now, uh, 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 these are the participants, the main participants in the uh, trial uh, are witnesses in the order in which they will uh, appear. In fact, also the order in which they are sitting. Françoise Hampson is a professor emerita at the University of Essex, where she has taught since 1983. Uh, she was an independent expert member of the UN Subcommission on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights from 1998 to 2007. She has taught, researched, and published widely in the fields of armed conflict, international humanitarian law, and on the European Convention on Human Rights. She's currently working on autonomous weapons, investigations into alleged violations in situations of armed conflict, and on the use of an individual petition system to address what are widespread or systematic human rights violations. Anthony Lowenstein is an Australian independence 
independent freelance journalist, uh, author, documentarian, and blogger. His uh, writings include My Israel Question, The Blogging Revolution, and Prophets of Doom, How Vulture Capitalism is Swallowing the World. His latest book, Disaster Capitalism, Making a Killing Out of Catastrophe, was published by Verso in 2015, and uh, it is available to buy just outside. Uh, the book is an exploration of how uh, disaster around the world has become uh, big business. Uh, Nathila Gane is an associate professor of international human rights law at the University of Oxford. She serves as a member of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe Advisory Panel of Experts on Freedom of Religion or Belief, as well as on the Board of Governors of the Universal Rights Group. She has uh, authored, co-authored, and edited a, a, a number of academic and UN uh, publications, including Religion or Belief, Discrimination and Equality, Britain in Global Contexts, and Human Rights, the UN, and the Baha'is in Iran. She served as consultant, uh, expert, and trainer for the United uh, Nations. Our fourth witness will appear on Skype eventually, uh, and if that does work, we'll know that we're a little bit closer to, to utopia. Uh, so he'll appear there. Uh, he'll be a bit like uh, Woody Allen's mother in New York Stories. Uh, the, those of you who have seen the film know what I'm talking about, I think. Um, so Khan Ross, who is our fourth uh, uh, witness from um, New York, is a former British diplomat uh, who resigned in 2004 after giving then secret evidence to a British inquiry into the war, uh, the war in Iraq. After he quit, he founded the world's first non-profit diplomatic advisory group, uh, independent Diplomat, uh, at iDiplomat, if, uh, if you prefer, which advises marginalized countries and groups around the world. And his latest book is The Leaderless Revolution, How Ordinary People Will Take Power and Change Politics in the 21st Century. Uh, I should also say that the indictment and the defense uh, statements are available on the uh, web uh, listing of, uh, of the event, where you also find a set of uh, briefing notes expertly uh, compiled by Rebecca Sutton and Aaron Wu, uh, both doctoral students here at LSE Law. Now, finally, a couple of things on um, the order of events. We'll begin with the statements uh, uh, from the prosecution and uh, then the defense. Uh, witnesses will then be uh, cross-examined. The two teams will then make the closing uh, statements. Uh, our judge will uh, briefly sum up for the jury, and then the jury will retire uh, to reach the verdict. While waiting for the jury to, to come back, we'll have a Q&A session during which you can address questions to any of our uh, panel, including Khan. Uh, now, while the jury deliberate, we'll also have a silent stream from the uh, jury room, uh, which is just around the corner here. But um, we won't be able to hear anything. We'll just be able to, to see them, because you see that's uh, that's the thing about juries. It's, uh, it's not why they decide what they decide. It's uh, what they decide that, uh, that matters. But at least we'll be able to keep an eye on them. Uh, so, you know, if, uh, if passions rise high, uh, we'll call security. Uh, now, uh, just a couple of very brief housekeeping notes. The event uh, is being recorded, uh, just to let you know. Uh, this is why during the Q&A session, the microphone will be passed uh, around. Uh, if you could please put your phones on uh, silent, uh, but do keep them on so that you can tweet away. Uh, the hashtag is uh, uh, LSE LitFest. Uh, and that's it from me. You'll be delighted to hear. Uh, so without uh, further ado, 
my Lord, I'm handing over to you, asking to start the proceeding. Yes. Well, thank, thank you very much indeed, and um, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to invite now the prosecution briefly to open their case to you. Uh, my Lord, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I speak tonight more in sorrow than in anger. Some of my best friends work at the UN. I spent two glorious summers there in the mid-90s working as a legal advisor to the Australian government, and I hate to kick a fellow when he's down. After all, it's not as if the UN is the worst international organization in the world. That would be FIFA. <laughs> Maybe the UN once was great or felt great to work at. The delegates bar, for example, used to be like something out of James Bond. You hummed the 007 theme tune as you ordered a drink. Now it's strictly IKEA, like the UN itself, barely functional and not easily disposed of when it passes its use-by date. Or as one lawyer put it, what began as promise ends as routine. But we might even challenge this summary. Was the promise so great? Here was an institution created quickly after the Second World War by the great powers who chose to call themselves the United Nations. These great powers then came together at Dumbarton Oaks and designed the whole thing themselves in two sets of meetings the Chinese refused to meet with the Soviets at this time. They then awarded themselves special privileges. Who exactly were these great powers? Well, there was a vastly superior United States and a Soviet Union soon to acquire its own nuclear arsenal. We can accept them. But the other three, the United Kingdom has always thought of itself as special. This is partly what the Brexit farrago is about. But a great power, not really in 2016, not even in 1945. The Chinese seat at the Security Council, meanwhile, was occupied by the government in Taipei, a strange sort of great power. This didn't change until 1971. Things moved slowly at the UN. Then there was France. I don't want to provoke a diplomatic incident. But France hasn't won a war since the 18th century. <laughs> By 1945, it was an exhausted and demoralized colonial power, but hardly a great one. Then there are the member states. The UN is open only to peace-loving nations. As Tom Lehrer said when Henry Kissinger was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, there is no need for satire. At the core of this system we're being asked to preserve is a giant misrepresentation. Even the name is all wrong. It's not a United Nations. The members of the organization are states, not nations. Nations are unrepresented. At the very least, even if the UN is not convicted and incarcerated tonight, it should be forced to change its name to the United States. <laughs> The United States could then become the United Nations. But our strong conviction is that the UN should be abolished, a sort of UNEXIT, in which the UN leaves the stage gracefully, an exit managed by a new and final Secretary General. 
Someone with charisma and tact. The sort of person that could make this work. A former mayor of a major city, perhaps. <laughs> what would you do instead? This is the perennial question. We say, let a thousand flowers bloom. We believe the abolition of the UN, taking place in stages and incrementally over a period of three months, would open up space for new projects, new ideas, new institutions. Let this be a moment of intense political, social, and cultural experimentation. Here, though, are some concrete proposals. The UN site on the East River will be given over to 3,000 Syrian refugee families alongside social housing for young New York artists who can no longer afford to live in Manhattan. There will be concerts every night and a new peace garden at the center of the complex. In Geneva, there would be a museum commemorating the history of the United Nations. We're not vindictive people. The UN's white armored cars would be repainted with the words, we're here to help. The UN has presided over a world in which poverty, premature and often violent death and unacceptable levels of preventable child mortality coexist with fantastic accumulations of hyper-wealth. For the past 30 years at least, the UN has served to offer an impression that something is being done about this. The road to hell is paved with the good intention of UN bureaucrats. To finish, it's had its 70 years as the primary political body of the international system. It's time to move on and establish new, more promising frameworks, projects, and institutions. We'll hear a lot tonight about the UN's so-called achievements. Alas, all the perfumes of Arabia can't make this institution smell more fragrant. Thank you. Well, after that uh, powerful peroration and extremely um, balanced, if I may say so, may I invite now the defense to open its case. Honorable judge, members of the jury, witnesses, and members of the audience, I'm absolutely delighted to be back here at the LSC today, and as someone who is not a lawyer, but a mere mortal, to use my first ever appearance in a court to defend your United Nations. The prosecution charges the United Nations with five offenses and recommends a drastic sentence, the termination of the UN. The defense asks the jury to note that the prosecution is calling for the UN to be abolished, not reformed, not even radically reformed, but abolished. The defense's much more reasonable case is based on the need for international cooperation and an organization that facilitates this to do a number of essential functions, develop methods for regulating relations between states, develop collectively agreed mechanisms and processes that support shared interests in areas such as health and telecommunications to address problems that arise from coexisting uh, states and their competing interests, to address the growing number and scale of issues that desperately need an international response, be it climate change or mass displacement, and to provide mechanisms that support individuals and groups whose governments are unwilling 
or unable to protect their rights and freedoms. Implicit in the prosecution's suggestion that the UN be replaced with vague, unspecified new frameworks, projects, institutions, concerts, and museums is that it acknowledges the need for an organization that fulfills the UN's roles and functions. And yet, the prosecution calls for the UN to be abolished without suggesting any credible alternatives and without assessing how disruptive such a transition might be or indeed whether such a transition is even possible in the current political environment. The defense won't argue that the UN is perfect, nor that it doesn't re- uh, need reform, even radical reform. Not even the most ardent UN supporters would do that. The defense will argue that the UN system comprises many different bodies, mechanisms, programs, and processes. And we are concerned by the pr- prosecution's reductionist view of the UN as the Security Council and the prosecution's focus on security and justice issues. The defense will also note the uh, relatively modest number of UN staff and its comparatively small budget. It spent less last year than people in the UK did on Christmas in relation to the mandate that states have given it to work on almost every aspect of human endeavor and planetary resource. Nonetheless, the system has made some positive and significant contributions in a host of areas. The defense is deeply concerned that the prosecution will take us too far into the realm of theory and offer only cherry-picked, narrow specifics, such as the UN's intern policy. The defense would therefore like to highlight some of the UN's considerable achievements. Successful peacekeeping missions in places such as Namibia, Mozambique, Timor-Leste, and Sierra Leone. Successful mediation efforts from the US-China hostage crisis to El Salvador to Kenya more recently. Successful compliance regimes on disarmament and child soldiers. Successful immunization campaigns that have protected 84% of the world's children. Targeted health campaigns that have eradicated smallpox and almost done the same for polio and leprosy. The 60 million people who have been able to rebuild their lives as a result of the UN Refugee Agency. The defense is also deeply concerned that the voices of people who have benefited from the UN and who continue to put their faith in it will not be heard at this trial. They include the Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon, whose village was destroyed during the Korean War and who relied on the UN for his education, for his security, and for medicine. They include the children across Africa and Asia who refer to water pumps as UNICEF. They include figures such as Kwame Nkrumah and Nelson Mandela, who praised the UN's role in freeing their people and helping scores of countries transition to independence. They include Estela de Calotto, a campaigner dedicated to finding children disappeared during Argentina's dirty war, who has praised the UN for its support. It includes refugees from places such as the DRC, who see the UN as their only hope for survival. It includes the Tamils in Sri Lanka, who see the UN as their only hope for justice and protection. To suggest that the UN should be abolished is quite simply irresponsible. What would happen to the millions of people for whom it is literally the difference between life and death? Fundamentally, the UN represents our attempt, however imperfect, to learn from the Second World War and to build an international community that can try and work together to solve problems. In the words of Doug Hammarskjöld, a former UN Secretary General, the UN was not created to take humanity to heaven, 
but to save us from hell. The defense will make the case for a reformed UN. The prosecution, too, may, during the course of this trial, try to backpedal on their recommended sentence. If they do so, they will only be admitting defeat. The UN is not a world government. It is a tool for governments, and it reflects political realities. If we don't like what we see in this mirror, we, governments, civil society, universities, everyone in this room, needs to do more to improve it. It's so much easier to blame an institution and much easier to say, oh, let's just scrap it, than to put in the hard work to make it more effective. Or perhaps we should, like the prosecution suggests, put our faith in the likes of Putin, Zuma, Cameron, Donald Trump, to build us a better alternative. Now, the, the first witness is Professor Francoise Hamson, and it's been agreed, I think, that um, the defence team will start by asking her questions. Thank you very much. Your, my first question is a simple one. Do you believe that the UN should be abolished? No, because if it were abolished, it would not be replaced by the kind of organisation that the prosecution seemed to have in mind. There wouldn't be another model. I think the UN needs to be reformed, but if it's abolished, it won't be replaced by something better. It will either be replaced by nothing, in which case there will be chaos, or a hodgepodge of separate things. What would you say have been the UN's most prominent achievements? I don't think they should be flagged. They need to be flagged up as important, but there are so many things that the UN hasn't done that I think there is a risk that achievements aren't noted. In your opening statement, you mentioned the medical achievements, which I think are really significant. I don't think it's the UN alone that achieved that. Um, I think often it's the UN in conjunction with other elements that's achieved things. For me, one of the... One, one of the elements that tends not to be mentioned is that in the past 70 years there's been a significant amount of standard setting. Standard setting with regard to human rights. Standard setting, for example, with the Millennium Development Goals. If it weren't for the standard setting, you couldn't say that states were failing. And I regard it as really rather surprising, although I normally take it for granted, that a collection of states in the UN was able to come up with the covenants on civil and political rights and economic, social and cultural rights. They may not be respected, but the point is they're there. States have chosen to adopt those as the benchmarks, and that's down to the UN. Would you say then that the UN has contributed significantly to the development of human rights norms and laws? It's contributed to the development of norms. It's not done as much as I would like to have seen to contribute to the implementation of norms. Do you believe that the UN has contributed to the development of mechanisms that promote and protect human rights? Yes, and to an extraordinary variety of mechanisms. The big problem at the European level is we only have a court, and it's a court that can only deliver, in effect, um, judgments in individual cases. It can't come up with general comments. Um, it can't come up with the kind of um, regular monitoring that the treaty bodies do. And at the European level, we have nothing remotely like the special procedures. 
So I think there's the range of mechanisms is significant, and in many areas, it's the only thing to which someone, even in this country, would have access. So do you believe, then, that the UN has made a practical contribution to protecting rights that has benefited individuals and groups? <coughs> that depends on the respondent government, because the treaty bodies don't deliver binding legal judgments, and so it doesn't have coercive authority. Nevertheless, in articulating what the rights are and where states have chosen to give effect to the finding of a treaty body, that wouldn't have happened but for the treaty body. Since you have to exhaust domestic remedies, by definition, if you managed to get something out of the UN, you wouldn't have got it at the domestic level. Would you say then that the UN human rights system has managed to engage through mechanisms such as the treaty bodies and UPR more or less all states? It's not the treaty bodies that have done that. It's the special procedures and UPR because they apply to all UN member states. No state can say, for example, the mandate of the special rapporteur on torture doesn't apply to us. It applies to all UN members. So in some respects, that's the most universal element of the system. Do you believe that over time the UN's work has contributed to the acceptance uh, increasing acceptance by states that their own records be scrutinized by mechanisms such as the Special Procedures, the UN, through the UPR? I think what you see in the UN, and you see it elsewhere, is that states are very good at saying that other states should accept things, but when you turn around and say, well, if you're saying it to them, it applies to you too, they're less good at that. But I think they're has been progress there, and for example, the commissions of inquiry that the um, Human Rights Council has set up, it's becoming more and more routine that they will create something which isn't coercive, but at the end of the day is seen as authoritative, and there's a, a, we're inching towards growing acceptance, but it's a very, very slow process. Does the UPR not engage the records, the, you know, engage and encourage the scrutiny of the records of all member states on a regular basis? The difficulty with UPR is it isn't carried out by independent experts and states tend to be rather too gentle on other states. It is informed by UN reports yes. and by reports from NGOs. Yes. And um, are there any particular reforms that demonstrate that actually change can happen at the UN that you believe have had a positive impact? Do you mean changes within the UN or things that the UN have done or UN mechanisms have done that have effected change within states? Both. Um, one example, which is probably what you meant, but it illustrates what I think you meant. There was a sustained concerted attempt to clip the wings of the special procedures when they were overhauling all the human rights mechanisms. And the fact that the Western group, by and large, managed to preserve the independence of the special procedures. They were playing bridge with a losing hand and they managed to win. So the failure to curb the special procedures I think is one of the most significant things. I think it's more significant than UPR because had that element been lost, then the damage to the human rights system, particularly with states that don't ratify treaties, would have been huge. So the maintenance of special procedures I think is important UPR has got potential, but we still have to wait to see it realised. Would you agree, then, that the UN is capable of instituting some, some reforms and some new processes and mechanisms? Um, no institution 
including any bureaucracy, whether it be academic or um, governmental, is good at reforming itself. You get vested interests, you, you get an accretion of institutions over time, and then they don't want to rationalize their procedures because of vested interests. So it isn't good at it, but on occasion, usually driven by a crisis, it will modify certain things. For example, the main reason I think that there was the significant overhaul of the human rights machinery was because states had to be seen to be doing something and they couldn't agree on the overhaul of the Security Council. So it was to be shown to be doing something that they did that. Um, it was on the agenda, so it was legitimate for them to do it, but it's a mark of their failure to reform the Security Council for the obvious reason that Turkeys don't vote for Christmas. So the chance of reform of the Security Council is, in my view, negligible. As far as the General Assembly is concerned, there might be chances, if you could get enough states taking part in the General Assembly to actually overhaul some of what they did, because it's one state, one vote, there is more chance of reform there. But I think it's, it's an uphill task, and a lot depends on the character of the Secretary-General. And the difficulty there is it's in the interests of the Security Council and the P5 to have a weak Secretary-General. So how on earth you're going to get a Secretary-General who can systematically lead things, uh, I don't know. But there are instances of not famously strong Secretary-Generals delivering things. There's a very recent example that I think, having watched this area for ages, is most encouraging. The current Secretary-General has ordered the entire DRC contingent that's been in the Central African Republic to head back to the DRC because some of the members of the contingent had been involved in the abuse of children. Now, he's, the ordering of a contingent back home, notwithstanding what this implies for the CR, CAR operation, I think is a striking bit of progress. So often it doesn't need dramatic changes. Little things can cumulatively make a big impact. I'm glad you mentioned the, the, the Secretary-General uh, in, in that regard. The General Assembly has, in fact, just adopted a resolution to improve the selection process for the Secretary-General, so change is possible. My final question is, um, what would the impact be on ordinary people, on the ability of people to do, like you to do their jobs, if the UN were to be abolished? It's very hard, it's a bit like the Brexit issue. It's very hard to know quite where all the ripples would go. I'm assuming if you abolish the thing, you cut off all UN programs of whatsoever type. That means an awful lot of medical assistance, an awful lot of educational assistance would end. That would have a huge impact in the developing world in nurturing the cadre of future leaders. You would also lose the ability to call states to account because you'd scrap all the human rights machinery. So the impact on the lives of individuals would be extremely significant. It depends in part on what other institutions fall. Does the IMF fall? Does the World Bank fall? Because in those circumstances, you would get such a degree of economic dislocation that one would have to wonder what the state of the economies of those particular uh, states that are dependent on them would be. So it's, it's hard to predict, but I think what one can predict is that the impact would be felt globally, including in states that might think they're less going to be less affected, and it would be felt at every level, including the individual level. 
Thank you. Thanks. The um, prosecution now, I think, have the chance to ask some questions. So, um, Professor Hampson, I have uh, five or six very uh, straightforward, innocent questions for you. And the first one is largely factual. Um, do you think the UN did a good job in Rwanda? Obviously, the UN did not do a good job, if by that you mean they didn't prevent genocide. I don't know whether states would have done a better job. I don't know whether any other mechanism could have done a better job. Nobody's suggesting the UN is perfect, and not uh, alongside Rwanda. Personally, I think the UN's got a lot of questions to answer with regard to Srebrenica, um, <coughs> because it was... Part of the problem was the failure to give close air support, and that was the UN refusing to allow the planes to strike. But I'm not certain that the alternatives would have been any better, simply because there are some dramatic failures. However dramatic they are, doesn't mean that something is useless. Can I ask about another <coughs> case, this time Libya? As you know, the UN... Uh, authorized the intervention in Libya in 2011. Do you think that authorization has resulted in positive consequences for the people of Libya? I don't think the problem is the authorization. I think the problem is the way in which the authorization was implemented by the United Kingdom and France. That the authorization, I think you can argue the authorization was impractical in that it was solely limited to the defense of civilians rather than taking the war to those who might be targeting civilians. So I think the resolution was interpreted in a very open way by first the UK and France and then the rest of the NATO coalition. And I think that's what caused the problem, not the actual resolution. Do you think resolutions can be interpreted in a number of different ways? I've yet to come across any statement that can't be interpreted in a range of different ways by lawyers. That's what we're paid to do. Um, okay. Uh, what, 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 what's, what's, your, what's your overall assessment of uh, UN reform uh, over the last, say, 30 years? I think that's a... A complicated question, particularly because there was one period when they actually claimed to be looking at a range of things simultaneously. So they were looking at Security Council reform and peacekeeping reform and human rights reform. And I wasn't surprised that the attempt to reform the Security Council was a total waste of time, energy and space and full of hot air. I was pleasantly surprised that more harm wasn't done when they were reforming the human rights bodies because states weren't trying to come up with a creative response. I think what's happened with regard to peacekeeping shows that it's very slow to get changes, and most of these are internal to the DPKO, um, the Department of Peacekeeping, and it's, they're moving in the right direction, but very, very slowly. So I, I don't think... I know of no example of positive, dramatic change. I know the failure to lose things that were important, which I actually regard as important, and slow evolution. But it's, it's not good at dealing with the situation you get where you've got different institutions or bits within the secretariat working in the same area. So there's a lot of 
duplication, not all duplication is bad, but there's a lot of unnecessary duplication in my view. There's a lot of uh, wastage of money in that I don't see why people need the salaries they get in the UN. But those things, I think it's going to be very difficult to see how those can be reformed except slowly and by working within the existing institutions. Does the, um, just as a matter of interest, does the UN pay its interns? No. (laughs) The UN would like to be able to pay its interns, but there is an interesting example that more states could follow. There are several states, they tend to be Western states, who, with regard to positions in the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights, they pay for two. One is for one of their nationals, and one is for a person from the developing world. If states created more of those sorts of positions where they weren't just limited to their own nationals, that would be a way of ensuring that interns could be paid and they wouldn't just be benefiting their own citizens. So two more questions. Uh, Let's switch to something more positive. Uh, What what would you say is the high point uh, of Security Council enforcement action over the last 70 years? 1990, following Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, that there, partly because Saddam Hussein had been sufficiently stupid not to have any friends who got a veto, there was a willingness, but I think it was because of the time, I don't think it would happen now and it wouldn't have happened ten years earlier, but there was a willingness to call something that was aggression, aggression. There was a willingness to take action to deal with it and to undo the consequences of aggression. I think for me that is the... I was surprised at the time. I still remain surprised that it worked. That was the UN working. So Iraq is the UN's greatest success. No, uh, let me, let no, me move Iraq. on to my final... <laughs> let me move on to my final Iraq question. Iraq in 1990. Let me move on to my final question. And again, this is a very simple uh, 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 factual question. Um, has any, has any uh, Western leader or soldier been charged with war crimes by an international criminal tribunal in the last 60 years? Can you say which Western leader you would expect to see charged for, with a war crime, bearing in mind that the definition of aggression is subsequent to the 2003 invasion of Iraq, which means you can't indict, unfortunately, President Bush and Tony Blair. So what is it that you want to see a Western leader indicted for that was an international crime? uh, What I imagine is the case is that many people would believe that Western leaders are responsible at some level for crimes committed by Western soldiers or personnel in wars like the Iraq War. Mm -hmm. And they would probably find it odd that there hasn't been a serious investigation into any of these alleged offences. There is currently an investigation going on in the Office of the Prosecutor with regard to the conduct of British forces. There has been a war crimes trial within the UK where the defendant pleaded guilty to a war crime um, because the International Criminal Court is based on subsidiarity and so if there are national criminal proceedings then they don't have a role to play. But there's no problem with them investigating to see whether cases that should have been brought have been brought. Personally, I hope that they won't limit themselves to the soldiers doing things on the ground, but they will work their way up the chain of command. Um, But I think it's too soon to say 
to how that's going to operate in practice. We need to know what the prosecutor is going to do in the UK cases, and I suspect the prosecutor is waiting to see what happens with the IHAT investigations. Thank you. Thank you. Is it okay if I just ask one question before we... um, Because I think think we've just about got time. You you, um, focused on Iraq in 1990, which I think is, is, is quite a good example. But it's not a possible explanation for that, is that the US, as the great power, knew that it had world opinion on its side, and it was prepared to place its own interests on the same plane as the United Nations, in other words, to subordinate itself to the United Nations. But if it believed that the United Nations wouldn't play along, the U.S. would have acted in its own interest in precisely the way it usually does. Is is that a fair point or not? Um, I think it is fair. 1990 wasn't a UN operation. It was a UN-mandated operation, but it was under US control. I can't imagine US forces in a war, as opposed to traditional peacekeeping, accepting that they should ever be under anybody else's control. I'm a little more startled that the British Navy in 1990 was under the day-to-day command of US forces. This makes me nervous because I think the US view of the content of the law of armed conflict is not necessarily the same as the UK view. I think that reflects what happens in the UN. We talk about the UN as if it is some independent institutional mechanism. Well, there is the Secretariat that's like any other bureaucracy, but the General Assembly and the Security Council are composed of states. If there is any failure there, it's not a failure of the UN, it's a failure in the states that compose the UN. And in the case of democracies, any failure is down to us, because we don't make enough fuss with our governments. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well... I understand we're aiming to keep about 20 minutes for each witness, and I think we did keep to that for the last witness, but I, I'm, I'm going to keep a watch on the time. But the, the next witness is Mr. Anthony uh, Lowenstein, and it's going to be the prosecution who are going to start asking questions. Please. Mr. Lowenstein, for the benefit of the ladies and gentlemen of the jury, can you outline your expertise in relation to the United Nations? I'm not a lawyer. Thankfully, I have no involvement with the law. I've never been a lawyer or a judge yet, thankfully. I guess my experience is I'm a journalist. I've been a journalist for over a decade. I've travelled to various places around the world, um, writing, investigating, observing, witnessing the role of the UN, amongst other conflicts. Particularly in the last 10 years, I think the examples that crystallise that the best would be Israel-Palestine, Haiti, South Sudan and um, Afghanistan. There are many others. And although my role was not purely to investigate the UN, as a journalist I observed and saw a range of failures of UN behaviour in those countries. So you've very much been on the front line, is that right? At times, yes. And in relation to those missions that you've been on, or investigations, however you'd like to call them, what views have you formed on the (coughs) ability of the UN to represent and protect uh, vulnerable groups in in those situations? Um, Generally fairly inadequate, to put it mildly. An example comes to mind. South Sudan, where I was living for much of last year, is one of the biggest UN missions in the world. 
and there are roughly 200,000 civilians who are living in protection of civilian camps, essentially UN-protected camps with peacekeepers from around the world, um, in theory to protect those civilians from what is government uh, atrocities and opposition atrocities. Just last week in the city of Malakal, which is one of the major cities in South Sudan, there was a protection of civilian site that was attacked by what appears to be government troops and militias, killing 24 civilians. The UN troops essentially stood by, didn't act, stood back, didn't absolve or didn't resolve that issue. So you had a situation where Ban Ki-moon, the UN Secretary-General, arrives in South Sudan this week. And I was reading just today his comments and transcripts of what he commented upon on these issues, and it was pretty outrageous. He didn't really say very much. He said it was a shame that this had happened. But the question is, these are protection of civilian sites organised, funded and protected in theory by the UN. And the UN fundamentally failed. And in fact, there are a range of examples in South Sudan where this has been happening for years. Um, that to me is a pretty stark example of a week ago where 24 civilians are dead because UN armed troops didn't do anything to stop a South Sudanese government in attacking them and killing them and torturing them and other atrocities. And uh, that's uh, an example from South Sudan. What other observations have you made uh, over the course of your, of, of your work? Well, I think one of the another worst examples would be Haiti. Haiti, as many people will know, um, suffered an earthquake in 2010. There was an, uh, roughly 200,000 people killed. The UN already had a peacekeeping mission there, but the UN sent more peacekeepers after the earthquake. And the effect of that was that Nepalese troops brought cholera to the country. Uh, roughly nine to 10,000 Haitians have died because of cholera. The UN, under the supposedly great accountable Ban Ki-moon, has clearly and consistently refused to take any responsibility for these actions. There has not been any kind of process put in place to stop cholera spreading in Haiti. People are still dying from cholera in Haiti. There's been attempts of legal action both in Haiti and the US against the UN, but the UN has claims of immunity in which countries in which it operates. Now, if, you are, if your own troops are killing indirectly or directly civilians that you're aiming to protect and you refuse to take responsibility, that's about as fundamental a problem to me as you can have with the United Nations. And in your view, has the UN failed to accept responsibility in those two instances, both South Sudan and Haiti? I think it has. In South Sudan, it's a weird situation. Having spent time there, the United Nations has a massive presence. And I think if the UN disappeared tomorrow, the situation in South Sudan, which is already appallingly tenuous, would probably be worse. So this is not an argument to say that the UN should disappear from South Sudan. However, if you are going to be in South Sudan and you're going to be apparently protecting civilians, if you're not doing that, then you are failing your mission. In Haiti, there are many Haitians who I spent time with in the last years who viewed the Haitian or the UN occupation of Haiti as an occupation. They viewed UN troops not helping them, but killing them and running around abusing, sexually assaulting, and in a few cases murdering Haitian civilians. There's been zero accountability for that. So in those two examples, I would say in Haiti the UN should not be there anymore. And in South Sudan, 
I fear, as I said, if they left, it would be worse. But just as I said last week, if they're allowing people to be killed, what is their role? And that's what one final point about South Sudan. It's a strange and unhealthy environment when the government of South Sudan, which was backed, supported, armed, trained by a range of countries, including the UK, the US, Israel and others, is murdering its own people. And for the UN to actually have to operate in that country requires the UN to play a very unhealthy footsies with the government which essentially is murdering its own people. Now that's the nature to some extent of peacekeeping missions but it's inherently problematic because everyone knows that the South Sudanese government is a murderous regime but is being to some extent having to be um, embracing, hugging with the occasional... um, yeah, with, with the UN, and that to me is problematic, to put it mildly. You'll be aware that one of the principles and purposes of the UN as expressed in the Charter is to save generations from the scourge of war. In your view, um, how in the past has the UN acted in preventing war? Sadly. What makes you say that? Well, when we were talking or hearing the last witness talking about and the question from, from your colleague about how have Western leaders ever been prosecuted? Have uh, military generals ever been prosecuted? I mean, the whole concept of uh, war crimes trials are by definition about race. They're by de- definition about race because in the vast majority of cases brought against supposed war criminals, they are basically black and basically African. There are a few exceptions to that, but the vast majority are. Now, when you travel around Africa, as I had last year, and various other places around the world, people will often say, our leader might be a war criminal, South Sudan and elsewhere. But you could say, I think with a great deal of validity, that the crimes that are being committed by our own leaders, this is white, mostly men, this could be British or American or Canadian or Australian, in terms of sheer numbers being killed, far exceeds the vast majority of African killers. And no one's seriously talking about bringing, for example, uh, Barack Obama to a war crimes tribunal because of his use of um, drones killing thousands of civilians. No one's seriously talking, although it's been discussed, but in a serious application, of consistent and successive Israeli prime ministers for similar kind of actions. Um, international law to me is a lovely concept and I support it but it's inherently um, selective and race and power is central to it and for a lot of the people who I spend time with who are victims of those crimes they see an international criminal court as a foreign idea that they like the sound of but it's mostly not delivering justice to them (coughs) There are, of course, occasions where the UN has sanctioned war. And looking back on those occasions in in recent years, do you consider them to have been successful on any occasion? You mean sanctioning war in terms of supporting war or sanctioning war criminals? The the first option. Well, the comment was made before about Libya. I mean, Libya has been a wonderful success, as anyone will see. And the Libyan war, I think, goes to the heart of where international law, in my view, fails. The concept of a responsibility to protect, which is a nice idea dreamt up by, in my view, deluded human rights lawyers, actually ignores the reality of what a responsibility to protect should be, which is civilians who are suffering abuses 
from governments which are close to us, which are our own governments. I don't see anyone seriously talking about sending UN peacekeepers to Gaza. It's mentioned and raised, but no one's going to seriously do it because it wouldn't happen. No one's seriously talking about the idea of sending peacekeepers to a range of other conflicts. So has the UN been wonderful at war making? Yes. Is there any accountability, for example, with Libya? No. Are we now talking about re-engaging and going back into Libya and bombing them again? Yes. Is that going to solve any problem? No. And it seems to me there's a profound disconnect here in much of the commentary in the West about why, for example, there is a mass number of refugees, people not fleeing conflicts for no reason. Libya, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria. We, and I say we as in Western states and Western organisations, are deeply complicit in those conflicts. So unless there's an understanding and an appreciation of how we have helped fund and arm and train those conflicts. I just saw this week the glorious British Prime Minister talking about how brilliant his words was that Britain is selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. Now, Saudi Arabia is a glorious dictatorship backed by us that tortured its own people and is bombing the people of Yemen. Now, if there was a serious discussion about implementation of humanitarian law... Isn't there a conversation about arms dealers who are selling those weapons? These are arms dealers that have visits to 10 Downing Street. This is not just arms dealers who are living in back rooms in dungeons who kind of make deals in the dark. This is publicly accepted people who get interviews at the Financial Times and proudly talk about it. Now, I mention this because international law should surely mean that the cause of violence against civilians means not just those pushing the trigger, it's those selling the weapons in the first place. And arms dealers, to me, are central to that. And is it your view that the UN has failed to act appropriately in sanctioning that sort of behaviour? The UN has certainly, over the years, to be sure, tried to impose arms embargoes, yes. There's an arms embargo, for example, against South Sudan, which has failed fairly consistently. That's not solely the fault of the UN, but it's the one cause of that problem. Um, when you have a range of countries that have no problem breaking an embargo, then it's difficult, unless the UN chooses to use force, which it generally will not, then an arms embargo is a very inaccurate and inelegant problem. Um, I think an arms embargo is something that should be put and imposed against the UK. There should be an arms embargo against Australia. There should be an arms embargo against the US. There should be a global arms embargo. In fact, there should be no weapons being sold to anyone. And that sounds utopian and crazy, but the fact of the matter is that this is what is causing the violence. My, my final question relates to the use of sanctions at the UN. And I want to ask you first about the sanctions, the general sanctions imposed upon Iraq, which existed for a long period of time until the mid 2000s mainly. What view do you take on the effectiveness of those sanctions and on the impact that those sanctions had, in particular on the humanitarian population? Well, the UN sanctions on Iraq were arguably one of the great untold genocides of the second half of the 20th century. There were former UN officials who were in charge of that UN mission who resigned because they said that those UN sanctions directly contributed to 500,000 to a million Iraqi children dying because they could not get access to the proper care. 
This is not to defend Saddam Hussein, who was a dictator and horrible, who I might add, when he was committing most of his crimes, was backed by us. We armed him and trained him and funded him. Minor detail which is often ignored by those who supported the war in the first place. The UN Oil for Food program was a disaster for another reason, namely the fact that it enriched a great number of individuals in this country, in my country, Australia and elsewhere. Do I think the UN has a role to impose sanctions? Absolutely. Is it generally done in an effective way? No. And the last witness made a very accurate point. The UN in itself is simply a body and the governments and the states around them make a choice how they choose to impose law or otherwise. To me, until there is serious reform of the Security Council, which ain't going to happen any time soon because of the powers of those countries, little will change. The fact that the UN Security Council, by definition, is based on racism. South America doesn't exist. Africa doesn't exist. That is a bit of a problem. A lot of people in the world live in both those parts of the world. And finally, on the use of sanctions against individuals, which there was obviously great use of post-9-11, what views do you have on those, and in particular... The, the lack of due process that may or may not have existed alongside those sanctions? I think that the idea of sanctioning individuals has validity. There are a range of cases that I've looked at over the years, and South Sudan comes to mind, that you have a situation where in 2011 South Sudan was born as a new nation. It remains the world's newest nation. Within two years, the country had fallen apart, and it remains now a tragically a failed state. The president of South Sudan, Salva Kiir, has, and there's a range of evidence for this, his, him and his forces around him have undeniably committed war crimes. The leading opposition figure, Riyak Mashar, has undeniably has forces committing war crimes. There are sanctions against individuals within that government which has not really been imposed. So the question really is this. How do you impose that? How do you have a situation where someone like Salva Kiir, the South Sudanese president, will travel to various places around the world and is greeted with respect. His hands are shook and he's greeted with admiration. That to me is a problem. An example last year where the leader of Sudan visited South Africa. Many people will be remember that case and there was an attempt by various uh, individuals to try to have him arrested because there's an outstanding warrant for his alleged crimes in Darfur. It didn't happen, but why? Because the South African government wanted to, you could argue, protect its own, protect one of its fellow African leaders. Now, I've got no simple solution how to break that impasse. There is no simple solution except to say that I think if a lot of leaders felt a lot more scared about the potential of being arrested or sanctioned or fined, then they might change their mind. And just finally, this to me has a lot to do with money <coughs> and funds. If the UN was far more serious about cutting off the funds and the ability for countries to get money to buy weapons, then it could be a lot more effective. Talk about sanctions against leaders who are committing crimes and their children. Block them, for example, being able to get educated in Western countries. I suspect there are quite a few dictators' children at LSE. I don't know. I'm just making that up, but I'm guessing there probably is. Um, that, to me, is a problem. That, to me, is a problem. And I think if we were serious about making leaders pay a price, don't allow them to send their kids to places like LSE. It's an appropriate place to finish the prosecution <laughs> questions. Thank you, Mr Lowenstein. If you wait there, there'll be some further questions for you. Yes, thank you. It's Mr Clark, isn't it? Yes, it is. Thank you. Um, 
Mr. Lowenstein, let's start, if I may, by accepting, if you're willing to, three premises. Mm-hmm. First of all, this isn't a trial of sanctions. It's a trial of the UN. Yeah? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Second, that weapons exist. True. Yeah? Yes. Were there? Okay. Yep. And third, that the United Nations did not invent them. I could probably agree with that, yes. Okay. My suggestion is that when we're looking at the UN and, and being critical of its actions with sanctions, the real question is, has it improved? And is it the kind of institution that can improve in that area? Mm-hmm. What's your understanding of how sanctions were pl- applied in the aftermath of the Cold War up to, the, say, the late 80s, maybe early 90s? In relation to what countries are we talking well, about? Well, let's here? say, for example, um, uh, Angola, 1993, is, a, is not a bad example. I haven't really studied much about Angola, so I could comment, but it wouldn't be based on a great deal of evidence, which is probably perfect for a trial, but I don't know. (laughs) So I can just respectfully pass on that question. Would it be fair to say that in in those relatively early days, sort of early 90s, Mm. sanctions were comprehensive, they were a blunt instrument? As they remain today, I would suggest. Well, that's why I want to challenge you. So let's work through this. Um... So they were comprehensive in the early days, and Angola, which you accept you don't know anything about, um, they were targeted against only non-state actors. Yeah. <coughs> so not so comprehensive even, even then. Okay. Would it be fair to say that one of the criticisms in Angola or elsewhere um, was that When when sanctions were comprehensive in that way, they were affecting the legitimate government in addition to um, their their intended target. Well, I sense that you spent a lot of time there in Angola. I can tell that in the early 90s, so you could probably tell me. But I'm not in. (laughs) So let's say maybe you're right. Okay. Well, let's say. (laughs) Let's say. I I like the sound of that. We can we can continue in this vein. Let's say that from, from that example of, of sanctions in Angola, quite soon afterwards, Haiti, that you have talked about, yes. um, the sanctions were directed against the illegal government, first of all, but they were, they were targeted, they weren't general, they were about a few things, weren't they? They were about generally petroleum, um, arms, and, and, and of a financial character. Is yes. That, that's right? Yeah? Yes. But it became apparent that... Despite those design efforts, there was still a negative effect on the population. Fair to say? Absolutely. In Haiti particular, yes. But that's, that was some sort of improvement from what would have been the case if those sanctions had been completely brute force, completely generalised. Perhaps. I mean, the situation in Haiti is an interesting one because the power of the United Nations... In there, despite the fact that it has a presence on the ground there, is actually far less than the presence of the US, which is an hour away by plane. That's the, that's the problematic issue there. So, yes, the United Nations has not really had a great deal of positive influence in Haiti because the truth is when you visit there, as I have twice in the last years, you hear, apart from the human rights reports, saying 
that UN peacekeepers who aren't necessary anymore because there is no war going on, there's no conflict, there is, no, there is violence, but that is not coming because of any kind of reason to have UN troops. UN forces have abused, killed and affected civilians in profound ways and brought cholera. That was many years after your example, granted. But they're still there and they have this weird obsession about never leaving. They want to stay there. Only you can tell me why that is. Well, perhaps you can um, <laughs> keep, keep to the, the... We haven't got much time here. Yes. Um, so let, let's not try and solve Haiti. Um, instead, let's deal with the UN and sanctions, which mm-hmm. is what the topic that I, I want to explore with you. Yes. Remembering this is not a trial of sanctions. All right. So you say. So we've got to the point where, and I think you accept even despite all that, that the sanctions that were applied were better than a total blunt instrument. I'm not sure I would accept that, no. I thought you did a minute ago. When no, you said... I accepted the fact that the UN has had a role there, but its effectiveness was... The issue was not the UN, the issue was the US. The US, UN's role in Haiti is relatively minor compared to the overwhelming power of the US. That's the issue. So there were sanctions. There remain a great deal of issues in relation to the UN mission there. So I would not really agree with that, no. So the point is that the UN's to blame for the power of the US? No, the UN's not to blame for that, but the UN has a choice and a responsibility if it chooses to remain there with an occupying armed force with no actual reason for continuing to do so. That, to me, is a problem of accountability. Why is the UN still in Haiti? And even more so when they brought cholera five years ago, that would be surely a good reason to either leave and take responsibility, which they have not done. Well, again, keeping to the topic of sanctions, if we may, I understand the, 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 uh, the concern about, about cholera. And it, of course, raises questions of UN accountability, etc., which could then lead me to ask you whether there were examples of the UN itself being on trial in a civil court as part of its own accountability. The answer would be yes, so I won't bother with that. I'll move on. Um, getting towards the late... 90s. You have the beginning of the use of um, sanctions against individuals. That's right, isn't it? In, in uh, primarily, first of all, Security Council Resolution 1267. Yeah. Which would be what exactly? They're, they're mostly in my head. Those resolutions, that's the, that's, that's but the a few one of them are directed at the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Okay. Yeah. Now. That, it's fair to say, was, was um, a fairly aggressive approach, which sought, it, I, I, well, did, I don't know if you were able to answer this or not, but did that resolution seek to cooperate with states or did it seek to force compliance? I would suggest it probably forced compliance. I mean, it wasn't very effective. The Taliban, of course, were in power till October 2001. And let's not forget, again, this is an important point, during that time when the UN was imposing sanctions, the US was negotiating an, an energy deal with the Taliban. So the Taliban weren't that evil for the US oil companies to do a deal. That's a pretty important point. So sanctions are here, and they're lovely and principled in theory, but in reality, economics wins the day. I don't disagree with you for a moment, um, which, is, which is why we have to understand the responsibility of the UN in the context of its external economic forces and constraints. That's fair to say, isn't it? Sure. Yeah. 
You've already mentioned um, September 2001, so let's go to that. It's obviously a fairly key moment in terms of sanctions. You immediately, after the September 2001 attack in New York, have a pretty drastic increase in the number of individuals on sanctions lists. Yeah? True. Now, did those sanctions... Um, and here we're talking about, we're really talking about Re- Resolution 1373, to the extent that's helpful, I don't know. Um, but did those, did those sanctions involve the upholding of human rights of those affected, due process? I think the last 15 years, certainly in my lifetime, have been the most catastrophic for human rights, so no. Okay. Well, okay, so you, you've, you've said in the last 15 years, as a, as a lump thing, if we're talking about the UN and its sanctions practice, it hasn't upheld human rights. Let's let's look into that. I am saying that, but let me just say, the fact that the last 15 years have been disastrous is far from simply about the United Nations. I'm not saying that at all for a second. The issues are principally actually more to do with various states that have behaved in awful ways. It's not just about the United Nations at all, no. Okay. Well, let's, if we may, look at what the United Nations has done within that period of time in which you've described other things going on which are regressive in human rights terms. So, September 2001, you have the expansion of sanctions for individuals for reasons which I would suggest, given the external politics of the rest of the world, are at least understandable. Mm-hmm. Yes. But in October 2001, one month later, yeah, I don't know if you're aware of this or not. Tell me if you are. Do you know what the, Secu- the Secretary General of the United Nations did one month later? Um, partied? I'm not sure. Um. He set up a working group which was concerned with the upholding and application of due process and human rights norms to sanctions, which concluded with the idea that, and I'm quoting here, the fight against terror must be compliant with human rights. That, in a world climate such as it was, one month after September 2001. It's fair to say that's an incredibly brave move, isn't it? On paper, that sounds wonderful, but I would suggest in the last 15 years it hasn't exactly worked very well. Well, let's remember this is the United Nations rather than the world on trial. Sure. Um, so let's, let's keep it to, to, to the, yeah, the institution. We're going to have there. to bring this to a... All right, OK. Ahead. One more question. One, One more question, sorry. all right. Otherwise well, we're... would you agree with this, then? In addition to that... Over the course of the next 15 years, the application of, a, of a, an ombudsman relation to human rights, to the reviewing of sanctions lists in compliance with due process, to the application of due process standards by other international courts and by the internal review within sanctions committees, all of those things militate very strongly in terms of the upholding of human rights in the context of sanctions against individuals and that those are measures for which the UN can be credited? I think there are certainly have been various attempts over those 15 years to implement some kind of grade of accountability. And I should just say in, in response to that too that despite the litany of issues and problems and abuses that I've cited in this testimony, I do think that abolishing the UN would be a fundamental mistake. I absolutely think that. And all the examples I've given, South Sudan included, despite the fact that the UN routinely fails to uphold 
its own norms, let alone human rights. I think if the UN did not exist, if the UN pulled out of South Sudan, say, tomorrow, that generally speaking, the world's human rights, humanitarian relief would be in worse shape. The problem is there is little or no appetite for serious reform within the UN, and until that happens, it'll sort of keep on dragging along like this sort of old man without a great walking stick or Viagra. That is a problem. <laughs> I'm told I can't follow up on that, so I'll <laughs> conclude there. Thank, Thank you. you. The next witness is Dr. Nazila Ghanaya. And on this occasion, um, I think it's going to be Ms. Samarasinghe who's going to ask the question. Is that right? No, it's going to be me again. Yes. Thank you, Um, Dr. Ghanaya, I I, I think in in some of your work you've referred to um, the notion of subsidiarity as a good way to orientate um, the relationship between UN bodies. Can you, can you explain what you mean by that? Well, more generally, the legal understanding of subsidiarity is that decisions should be taken at the level closest to where the problem is and uh, should be more responsive at that level. So some decisions are best taken at the EU level. Others are much better taken at the local level or the national level or the international level. So, yes, I mean, I think that we shouldn't push everything upwards to the United Nations, nor should we dismantle the United Nations and only think locally because we live in a much more complex world. But we should push decisions and accountability to the level of the operative level where it is most meaningful. Um, In terms of that approach within the UN of trying to locate decision-making at its most in its most effective place. How would you evaluate the, um, the, the, the UN's current structure in that regard? Well, it works in some cases, but um, often the agencies at the national level have their own mandate and accountability structures. Some of them, for example, UNDP needs to be cozier with the government because they have certain projects in mind and development they consider a much longer-term objective that they don't necessarily want sort of interrupted through human rights concerns that may or may not pass away. So, yes, there has been an effort over the last 10, 15 years to have, you know, national plans and country assessments, etc., and to bring the agencies together more meaningfully at the national level, but it doesn't always operate successfully. Um, Why is that? I think the first witness uh, talked about the vested interests that build up over time, and also... These multiple mandates, you know, these multiple mandates and agencies ultimately are not accountable to the same, you know, criteria, um, and their funding comes from different sources. So there isn't the incentive to really cooperate. So there has been an effort of bringing them together to try and hammer something out, but um, if it's not your paycheck and if it's not the mandate that you have been brought to the country for, ultimately there isn't the interest to really cooperate. And we're talking, you know, the UN agencies and the, the government or even the UN agencies amongst themselves. Okay. You've referred 
to some extent, to um, what might be described as competence overlap. Um, there seemed to be implicit in, in what you described there the idea that somehow it would be better, it could be better, it should be better if everything was just if everything was just systematized. Is there not, I want to suggest, a value in the friction between those bodies, in the in in, in some value in in the overlap? Um, I don't think there's. There's an interest for the man on the street, the woman on the street, for there to be inbuilt conflict. No. I think a consultative process that is really open and has the person on the street in mind, the child on the street in mind, is much more constructive. So, no. I mean, overlaps can sometimes be beneficial because what appears like an overlap or an inefficiency could actually be bringing in different actors. I mean, we can go into that later. But I don't think inbuilt conflict is beneficial. No. Okay. Um, well, just to give one example, just um, to, su- to make the suggestion, to push a little bit, on, if I may, on, on the question of whether inbin- inbuilt conflict is necessarily a bad thing. To think about the example of the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia, there's considerable overlap, I don't know if you know this or not, between the um, role of the UNDP in terms of outreach and uh, relationships with victims and the court itself. The result of that has been a sharing of a budget and the um, learning of lessons from one organization to another and a more nuanced separating out of functions. Is that not something which could be inherent in the notion of competence overlap? But it could also be inherent in an open consultation that leaves you know, focus on people in, you know, as the sharp focus of the objective. Okay. Going back to subsidiarity, um, you've already heard some evidence about international criminal law, and there's some reference to subsidiarity in reference to the International Criminal Court. Um, Would you be able to expand on that? I think you should have targeted that at the first expert. Right. Um, Not particularly, but um, I'm thinking at the human rights level, I'm thinking in terms of development, I'm thinking in terms of accountability, in terms of financial accountability. So I'm thinking at multiple levels, not only in in terms of criminal law, although it's the legal definition that I've used. Um, If I may, I'm I'm going to hand over to my my colleague to ask, uh, I think, one more, a couple more questions. Thank you. You you spoke a lot about um, transparency and and the need for some more accountability, especially on the activities that the organization is doing and uh, its finances. Given that the UN has 193 shareholders um, who asked the Secretariat to produce regular reports uh, on its activities, who have protracted budget negotiations, probably the the longest and most detailed negotiations that take place at the UN, um, given that most of the, well, actually all of those documents are on the the UN uh, Budget Committee, the Fifth Committee's website, given that UN agency boards replicate a similar sort of process, given that there's a chief executives board, which is effectively an audit body um, to which national auditors are um, appointed. I know I actually work with someone who used to audit UNDP, Um, given that, in addition, states do their own reports. The UK did the multilateral aid review, uh, which scrutinised the effectiveness of all um, UN agencies, and NGOs do their own reports. There are lots of interviews with beneficiaries of UN programmes as well. Would you agree that there is at least some degree of transparency then, and that the situation isn't 
possibly quite as bleak as no transparency at all. Absolutely. And in fact, uh, I agree with uh, what's come up with the previous two experts as well, that you know, we talk about the UN as this corporate body and ultimately we're talking about states. And most of the weaknesses and the disasters and the failures of the United Nations you can trace to... Uh, particularly powerful states or blocks and, you know, negative moves uh, and disastrous resolutions that are meaningless in the human rights mechanisms. You know, where do they come from? They come from blocks of states that uh, have, don't have the success of the United Nations in mind at all. They have alternative objectives and they're trying to win their own, uh, you know, power games. So, absolutely. But accountability is more than financial accountability. It's the moral accountability of the United Nations. The previous expert was saying the UN should claim less and pull out more and be more honest, uh, if, I, if I put words in your mouth, if I, if I may. And, um, you know, should, should the UN become more sober in its claims? Should it say, well, peace when possible or human rights for most of you if you're in a democratic state? I mean, should it kind of pull back on its claims? Um, or would that not put sort of uh, the higher objective at least on, on the agenda as something to be strived for? I mean, that's an open question. But the golden age of the United Nations, I think on so many levels, its best moment was the early 1990s. Why is that? We should, we should ask ourselves. Well, the, the Cold War had ended and new blocks of power, conflicting um, you know, power interests between states hadn't yet built up. And that's why it was the golden moment. So if we had, even if we had 193 independent states, we might get much further with the United Nations. We don't. We have blocks that are fighting particular agendas against one another. I'll leave that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. The golden age of the UN was in the 1990s. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to regret that now. These other periods, uh, between 1945 and 1991, when the UN seemed somehow paralyzed by the Cold War, or the later period when we can blame the failures of the UN on the work of the great powers, uh, those were not particularly successful. So we've got this period... It's not only powerful states. Uh, Sometimes it's blocks of states. Yes, lots of recalcitrant states out there. That's true. Um, So so this period in the 1990s. um, Do you agree with uh, one of the previous witnesses that the Iraq War in 1990-91 was was the great success or one of the great successes (laughs) of this single golden period in the UN's existence since 1945? I think if I was a Kuwaiti, I would be quite impressed that the country regained its independence so quickly. And uh, my brother was in Kuwait airport when the invasion happened, so I'm glad he survived. So, you know, on the personal level, but also if we put ourselves in terms of that context of a country just being obliterated and then regaining independence, (coughs) then yes. And in terms of, as you said at the beginning, United Nations actually being united, it was a moment of more unity than other phases. And has it led to uh, great successes in the the Middle East since then, do you you think? No, and that's why it was a moment in time where, you know, one polarizing force uh, on, you know, on the countries of the world disappeared and new polarizing blocks had not yet appeared. So would you uh, argue that the UN can only really (coughs) function effectively when there is a a single superpower on the scene, uh, as was the case in the the golden age of 1990 to 1991? 
No, I was trying to claim... Uh, Yes, of course, it was under U.S. supervision, so perhaps uh, I can see where you're coming from. But what I meant is that the states that joined the coalition um, were more independent, made a more independent decision than they have subsequently made because they have been tied to regional and other blocs. So we're hamstrung, we're paralyzed by national interests, and not only national interests, but blocs of national interests, on different issues. So it's not a sing, you know, one, sing, one block is on uh, family protection, one is on defamation of religion, one is on uh, women's rights or against women's rights. So there's many, many blocks, issue by issue, in the human rights sphere, and then lay that out also in every other sphere. So you would say the UN is hamstrung and, 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 and paralyzed. In fact, you just did. Uh, yes. so, yeah. okay. But um, there are ways where there are contexts and ways in which that is diminished. So bringing in more experts, bringing in more non-state actors, bringing in more balanced, more voices moderates the domination of blocks of state interests. Yes, yeah, so an organization that did actually bring in all these other interests would be a, a very promising one, I think, judging from what, what, what you've just told us. And the UN sometimes <laughs> does. Sometimes. And in some mechanisms, uh, it, it does that very successfully. The mechanism that Francois served on, the subcommission, the United Nations subcommission, on the one hand, uh, going by your earlier statement, you could say that it was inefficient to have country resolutions adopted in August by the subcommission and the subsequent March, well, September in the General Assembly sometimes, uh, or December, and then the subsequent March in the UN Human Rights Commission. That was before 2006. But actually, it was a fantastic backdoor for experts deciding when a country situation deserved more scrutiny, and that was, it wasn't dependent on power interests and sovereign interests. So. It was a duplication, but it provided unique opportunity, and there's many cases of that. The Iran resolution was one resolution that was adopted in the early 90s by the subcommission. It would have never, the commission, a state body, would have never had the, the guts to have adopted that first. But after a few years in the subcommission, then it became you know, better established, and uh, the, the commission was able to take it on. Do you think it would be fair to say that one of the UN's problems has been the uh, role of, of great powers in obstructing possible UN action in, say, the human rights field or the environmental field? Uh, yes, it certainly has been sometimes, but uh, sometimes they've also spearheaded positive uh, developments on thematic issues or country issues. So it's a mixed bag, really. Do you think that they spearhead better when they're unified than when, they're, when, when there's disunity amongst the uh, great powers? Probably then uh, it differs on the, if it's a thematic issue or a country issue. Uh, but in general, I think, uh, it, well, it depends also what their unity is focused on. Is it focused on their own interests or is it focused on people? <coughs> One last question. Um, can you imagine a world in which the UN doesn't exist? Where we've taken great leaps forward in international organization is where we have had a very deep realization, often from great catastrophic struggle and disaster, of the need for a, a, you know, a, a leap forward in our imagination of how to organize internationally. I'm not sure we're there now. 
But could there be such a moment? Yes, but we would be replacing the United Nations with other international agencies that I think, uh, at least at the beginning, would resemble much of what we have now, <coughs> one would hope with more success. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much. Can I, can I check that um, Mr. Khan Ross can hear us okay? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, excellent. It's working, it's working well. Um, you, you're going to be asked some <coughs> very friendly questions, nothing, nothing hostile, I'm, I'm sure. It's the, um, the prosecution, first of all, who are going to ask questions, maybe about eight to ten minutes, and then the defence. So I'll invite the prosecution to start, please. Mr. Ross, it's right, isn't it, that you're a former British diplomat? Yes, and I served four and a half years at the UK mission to the UN, um, which is my primary experience of that organ, though I've also taken many delegations to the Security Council, and today the organisation I run advises many political groups and countries which are on the agenda of the UN Security Council, such as the Syria Coalition, the Frente Polisario... PLO um, and various others. So I have this rather strange experience of it in the round, both as a permanent five member, but also as a, uh, an advisor to countries who are very much the subject of the UN's attentions. And given the breadth and range of that expertise, uh, how effective do you consider the Security Council to be as it currently operates? Well, I think you only have to look at the state of the world to see that it's not working terribly well. Uh, you know, we have rising conflict across the Sahel. Uh, the Middle East is in flames. Uh, ISIS is ex spreading its tentacles into South Asia and beyond. It's a pretty disastrous picture. And what responsibility do you think lies with the, the, the P5 members for that state of affairs? I think a lot of responsibility because they are the main obstacle uh, to reform of any kind, whether of the veto or of uh, the membership of the Security Council, the working methods of the Security Council, which is a particular bugbear of mine. And uh, I think many, many things could be done to improve the Security Council that are actually easy, that could be done tomorrow, that don't require uh, a, ch a reform of the UN Charter. But I also blame the UN Secretariat. I think the Secretary General has enormous power to do better, uh, the Secretary-General has been totally cowed over generations by the P5, and that has been very much to the detriment of people suffering conflict around the world, particularly in cases like the people of Srebrenica or the people of Rwanda, where you can trace their deaths. Of course, their murderers are primarily responsible, but you can trace their deaths directly back to failures of the UN Secretariat, of the Secretary-General himself, and the UN Security Council. And you've spoken about reforms to the Security Council, which seem to be endlessly and perpetually discussed. How likely is it that there will be any meaningful reform of the Security Council in, in, the, near, in the near future? Um, there will be no enlargement of the UN Security Council. There will be no reform of the veto. Neither of those things show any sign of happening um, in, you know, in my lifetime. And I'm not that old. Uh, as for other changes, I actually think that changes in working methods are much more plausible, but they require 
real bravery from the non-permanent or elected members, and for the permanent members to see sense, the, the decline and de de deterioration of the UN as an effective peacemaking body is very much uh, not in their interest, and that something drastic must be done to improve it. You've spoken about the deterioration of the UN. There's been evidence which very sadly you've missed, which has covered Angola in 1993 and Iraq in 1991. When do you say the UN started to deteriorate, in particular in relation to the role and remit of the Security Council? Uh, I, in fact, heard all the evidence. I, I've been oh, I apologise. You, you yes. couldn't see me. Um, it, it's very difficult to, to talk about the sort of arc of an institution. Uh, I think the, you know, the, the, the disastrous moments of Rwanda and the Security Council's handling of the collapse of former Yugoslavia um, and today, what is happening in Syria are particularly dark chapters. Uh, I wouldn't contrast that with great moments of success by the Security Council. I certainly think anybody who lived in Bosnia uh, or Kosovo would dispute the suggestion that the 1990s were some kind of golden age for the UN. Uh, in fact, you could look at it as precisely the opposite. But I think you can trace an arc of really the state of the world and the UN Security Council alongside it. What we're seeing now is a world that is beset by conflict that is not between states but inside states and is uh, across states. It is both transnational and interior to state borders. ISIS is the classic example of this. Uh, Al-Qaeda is another one, uh, but they are proliferating these threats. Boko Haram, uh, Shabab has made links with Al-Qaeda. We're seeing this security threat, I suppose you could call it, that is proliferating around the world that shows no signs of really being stopped, even if in certain places uh, it can be militarily defeated. And I just don't see that the Security Council is on top of this as a problem. In your assessment, has things got better or worse in the last 10 years in respect of the Security Council and how it operates? Far worse. I was on it from 98 to 2002, and it wasn't exactly uh, the heyday of that, that institution then, but it's really declined since then. It's become much more obsessed with its own procedure. The P5 dominate proceedings even more than they did before. The non-permanents have more or less given up, and you know they're truly pathetic in their unwillingness to take on the P5. Uh, so I, I think it's considerably worse in procedural terms, in terms of effectiveness, I mean, you tell me, was the war in Iraq uh, uh, worse or better than what we're seeing in Syria today? I, I don't think it's really a meaningful uh, discussion to have. As I understand it, there's been a quadruple veto in respect of Syria from the Security Council. What, what reasons do you ha have for that, or what insight can you offer as to why that might be, or how uh, you see it changing? Well, I don't really see what a quadruple veto means. I don't see it that way. Russia is solely responsible for blocking meaningful action in the Security Council on Syria. Solely responsible. Uh, the Russian role in Syria has been egregious and outrageous and needs to be talked about and confronted. They are the main reason there has not been sanctions on Assad. There has not been enforcement action on the Syrian regime which at the end of the day, despite ISIS, is by far uh, the party most responsible for uh, hundreds of thousands of deaths in Syria and continuation of the conflict. And we shall see tonight whether the regime and Russia are actually committed to, uh, 
to a, the ceasefire they purportedly had agreed. You mentioned sanctions. As I understand it, you have direct experience with the sanctions regime imposed in Iraq. Is that right? That's right. I negotiated many resolutions on sanctions and weapons inspections in Iraq between 1998 and 2002, which is why I'm no longer a British diplomat. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, what what did you observe in relation to the way those sanctions were imposed? And I'm thinking in particular of the impact on them on uh, human rights and and civil liberties? Well, there were no civil liberties in Iraq, thanks to Saddam Hussein. I think the more important question is the humanitarian impact of sanctions, which uh, an earlier speaker has, has, an earlier witness has talked about. And it's a difficult subject for me because I feel great personal shame about my own involvement in that episode. Um, we worked hard to lighten the burden of sanctions on Iraq during the years I worked on it, but it was nothing like enough. And by then, and during the period I was responsible for the subject, enormous damage was done to the civilian population of Iraq and to the economic uh, infrastructure of Iraq. We devastated that country long before we invaded it. And indeed, that devastation is one of the reasons why efforts to rebuild Iraq, such as they were after the invasion, were so unsuccessful. Uh, Sanctions against Iraq were a disgrace. I'm ashamed of my role in it. Uh, The UN didn't do enough to stop it. The Secretary General went along with it. I was in meetings with him personally, with Kofi Annan, where his criticisms of of sanctions were so quiet I could barely hear them. And post 9-11, the imposition of sanctions on individuals, in other words, adding them to so-called blacklists, the process of listing and delisting. What observations do you have about the fairness or adequacy of that sanctions process? It's difficult to judge the adequacy because we're talking about people who may or may not have committed crimes, uh, terrorist crimes, but uh, who may have been prevented from such. We don't really know who has been prevented from doing what, but what we can certainly see is the the rank injustice of the process where any country can submit evidence that is is not questioned, that the the person who has been listed has no right to question that evidence. There is no due process whatsoever. And the uh, consequences for that individual in terms of their limitations on their movement, on their free movement, but also on their own economic life, their assets are frozen, are extraordinary and devastating. All that said, I was in New York during 9-11, and I don't remember many people objecting to what we did in the Security Council after that event. Uh, It's funny how easy it is to forget the mood of those days today. Of course, looking back, great mistakes were made, uh, terrible things were done, Uh, but I remember what it was like to be there then, and you realise that the UN, just like every other political body, is a body of fallible silly, uh, unwise, uh, forgetful human beings, rather than this edifice uh, that uh, stands for some greater good. This is my frustration with it, is that it is fixable as an institution. We treat it as this cathedral uh, where there is a a liturgy that can't be questioned. In fact, it's like the Vatican before the Reformation. We need a Martin Luther to go and post his... Uh, what was it, 93 theses on the door of the Church of Wittenberg. It could be reformed, it can actually be done, 
but countries great and small are going to have to get out of the enormous complacency that afflicts them over the UN. It's fixable, but it's also replaceable, isn't it? Uh, I, don't, I mean, that's such a big question. I don't know that it's meaningful. Uh, the one thing I felt about the Security Council, which excludes almost uniformly the people it's actually talking about, and this is one of my big complaints about it as a body, that, and this is what my institution, Independent Diplomat, is dedicated to, is, is bringing the people who are actually affected by its decisions into the Security Council. Uh, but the one thing one felt being there was at least we were talking. Um, you know, and we talked every day. And today, for instance, the Security Council is meeting, I think, right now to discuss the, Syria, the ceasefire in Syria tonight. Russia, America, China, uh, Britain and the others are all talking this afternoon about that ceasefire. I think that's important in its own right. One can criticise everything they're talking about. One can criticise the conduct of each of those countries in uh, the Syria conflict in different ways, but they are talking. And that, I think, has value that can't be dismissed. Mr. Ross, thank you. If you wait there, there'll be some further questions. Thank you. Thank you. Any questions from the defense? Uh, yes, absolutely. Hello, Khan. Um, so glad you could join us. Um, I'm, going to, I'm worried that we might run out of uh, time, so I'm wondering if we could try and have some sort of quick-fire questions, seeing as you're knowledgeable on quite, quite, you know, quite a wide range of issues um, about a range of things that have been covered um, at, uh, during the trial, and perhaps just have some very, very short answers for you so we can cover as much ground as possible. I'll do my best. Okay, thank you. Um, do you agree that the, the consequences of conflict uh, within and across borders uh, on the states involved, on their neighbors, regions, the wider world, in terms of human suffering, displacement, economic development, trading ability, crime, extremism, etc., necessitates the need for, for some level of international involvement in conflict prevention and resolution? Yes. <laughs> Do you believe that the existence of collectively agreed principles and rules for such involvement and the existence of collectively agreed for, uh, fora and mechanisms to discuss, if you, as you just pointed out, these principles and rules can have a, a, <clears throat> some effect to restrain unilateral action outside those collectively agreed principles? Some effect, but I worry that international law and the body of, of rules that's embodied in the UN is some ways a way of confusing people and where making people think that we live in a rules-based order when in fact we don't and that we need a much greater humility in approaching these conflicts and that rather than looking at a top-down institution imposing rules, which is the way we tend to think about the UN and indeed about government in our country, we should think about a bottom-up uh, process, an institution where the people actually affected get to talk because in my experience, when you talk to Palestinians, Kosovars, Iraqis, Syrians, where I've just been, they have a pretty damn good idea about how to end these conflicts. And it hasn't got a whole lot to do with international law, even though international law has a whole lot to say about those places. I'm not sceptical of international law, but I'm sceptical of a belief that a rules-based institution is the best way of creating peace and security. You just made the point about uh, the, the need for perhaps more humility and, and tempering expectations of what can be achieved. Um, 
Is it not accurate to say that the Secretary General cannot actually refuse when member states ask the UN to do tasks for which it does not have the capacity, funding or even expertise? I didn't say we should temper our expectations. I actually think extraordinary uh, change is possible. The 21st century is, we're, we're living in an incredible time. And what I find so frustrating is that when I go to these places and talk to these people affected, 99% of them, you know, perfectly sensible, rational human beings who could sort out their problems if only they had the chance. Instead, we have to wait like supplicants for the men, largely men, at the top of the pyramid to make up their minds, often based, making their decisions based on antiquated notions like security, which is a kind of deeply vacuous idea, national interests, which are manufactured in every single case, and the idea of government-imposed order. Uh, I think these are uh, fallacies that we need to start abandoning in the 21st century. And then, once you abandon these precepts of how we think about the world, everything becomes possible. But, but just to return to the specifics of my question, is it not true that it's not the Secretary General who can decide what the UN needs to do, really, in terms of taking on a peacekeeping mandate? It is the Security Council that does, does so. Yeah, of course, it is. Uh, but the Secretary General could be a great deal braver in saying what needs to be done in particular cases. Instead, we have Secretary Generals, and the rot set in long ago... Kofi Annan, I think, was particularly culpable of this, of framing the advice of the Secretariat according to the prejudices of the Security Council and the P5 in particular. And Rwanda is the most egregious and horrible example of this, where the Secretariat, in fact, Kofi Annan himself, withheld uh, a direct warning of imminent genocide in Rwanda from the Security Council because he believed the Security Council didn't want to hear it. What we need is independence and bravery. We need somebody of real heft and independence to sort that place out and say what needs to be done in places like Syria, Israel, Palestine. It's not complicated. We have turned conflict prevention and uh, uh, the conflict resolution into some kind of highfalutin art where it's taught in universities, where great manuals are written about it. You can have textbooks this thick on international law. It's not complicated. It's just people needing to talk to each other. And that is not happening. We've made a, a kind of monster in Turtle Bay, and we need to bring it back to basics. Um, uh, would you say that Turtle Secretary Bay, General's... The UN is, it's in the, this neighbourhood of the Upper East Side. Would you say that no Secretary's General have, have been effective at all then? Yeah, Kofi Annan in brokering deal with pharmaceutical companies that widened access to HIV AIDS, Ban Ki-moon's advocacy of LGBT rights, Dag Hammarskjöld's role in developing peacekeeping. Has there been no effective action at all then? I don't think I said that. Uh, I'm talking about conflict. I, I, don't, I can't comment on those issues, though I would comment as a general matter that the endorsement by the UN or indeed of governments of LGBT rights or human rights or uh, uh, social norms always follows from social movements making that a demand. But is that a bad thing? Is that not a sign of the UN listening? If I may be so bold as to interrupt. Uh... It can be, it can be. Um, you know, I'm not against the endorsement of these standards. Um, 
uh, that's a good, a good thing. I was talking about conflict, which to me, um, it's my speciality. I know more about it. And you know, I worry that it actually is one of the things, like climate change, that could actually bring an end to us all. Okay. So let's put aside the, 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 the huge achievements of the UN system in terms of addressing development, uh, climate change, etc., and focus on conflict then. Can I ask you just a factual question? Are UN peacekeeping troops under the command of the UN? Does the UN have the ability to prosecute them? Or do they not remain under the command of uh, governments? Well, can I just stop for a second? I didn't say that the UN doesn't achieve things on development or indeed climate change. Indeed, we were heavily involved in the climate change talks in Paris. The UN agreement uh, agreed at Paris was the most extraordinary achievement. But notably, not a single scientist believes that the commitments embodied in that agreement will be enough to achieve the target of that agreement to keep warming below 1.5 or 2 degrees centigrade. There, in a nutshell, you have, a pro- you have the problem of the international system, that we turn to governments to fix our problems, and they are not adequate to solve the problem. It's not that we should abolish them and you know, just dismiss them completely. They have a role, of course, but it's nothing like enough. As for your question, of course, uh, it's co- actually a complicated question. I don't want to get too technical, but... At the, the end of the day, yes, some national contingents are purely under national control, but you forget the degree of control that the UN has in the field. I've been in the field with UN peacekeeping missions, and I've been quite astounded by the degree to which <coughs> senior officials have power um, over their missions, a, a power that is almost totally unaccountable and untransparent, and often has turned, not always, but not, has often turned in, into something very ugly, in that place where the local people who I have talked to in Kosovo, South Sudan, to start to see the UN as part of the problem rather than part of the solution. All of this, again, could be solved with more accountability, transparency, and participation of the people affected. I want to ask you one question about Libya. Do you believe that, given the sort of context of you know, local, regional, national fear that mass atrocities could occur, the sort of imminent threat that came from Gaddafi, his use of language such as you know, cleansing Libya, eliminating cockroaches, and his um, you know, issuing a specific threat to a particular group of people at a particular time, given his previous record as well. Do you believe that the international community was right to contemplate at least some action to address mass atrocities? Yeah, and it was absolutely right. The Security Council resolutions on Libya and the intervention in Libya, I completely supported at the time, and I support now. I've met people from Benghazi who said that if it hadn't been for NATO's intervention at that point, they would be dead. Um, that I find pretty compelling, just as I supported the intervention in Kosovo. You know, the test is what the local people think. I don't think we can be... Uh, we can have a uniform response to all of these extraordinarily difficult cases and different cases... And I think it's frankly idiotic to say that Libya today is somehow attributable to that, in, that, uh, that intervention, that somehow it would have been better to allow Gaddafi to carry on repressing the, uh, the revolution and killing his own people in large numbers. I think that's a, an idiotic argument. Um, final question from me then. Um, you said that the sort of Security Council and its decline actually matches the decline in a way of the international community's ability to work together. So would you have faith then that were the UN to be abolished, were this forum that has built up you know, over many, many decades um, a body of work, that it could actually be replaced by today's leaders with something better? 
I don't think I ever said it should be abolished. I'm not a witness for the prosecution. I'm a witness for neither. You know, I think it needs radical, radical reform and, and people, great and small, need to really pay attention to it because it really, really matters. I don't think it should be abolished because I, I absolutely have no faith in our current leaders to replace it with something better. The people I do have faith in is actually people like the audience tonight, the young cosmopolitans of the, of the London School of Economics, who are actually creating a very different world through their own activities, through, through, through the own extraordinary meshes of activities that are growing up in the 21st century world, which in, in my view are much more powerful engines of world peace and development than anything the UN or any government can do. Thank you. Well, we're now going to have closing statements. It's been agreed that the prosecution will go first and then the defence. I'm going to ask each, each side if they could keep pleased to about five minutes. So it's the, it's the prosecution first, I think. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you have heard the charges, you have heard the evidence. The question for you now is whether or not the UN is guilty as charged. What we, the prosecution, say is that the UN has failed to realise the ideals expressed in its own charter. And you will know those, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, but I'll quickly remind you now, to save generations from the scourge of war, to reaffirm faith in fundamental rights, and to promote social progress and better standards of life. And what we say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, is whether or not they've fulfilled those ideals is, is a question that's very easy to answer. And from the evidence you have heard this evening, including <coughs> from the evidence that the prosecution rely on, that answer is plainly no. What have you heard about the UN today? Well, you'll remember what Mr. Ross has just said about the Security Council. You'll remember how much experience he has in the Security Council, both from the point of view of a permanent five member, and also now from the point of view of lobbying on behalf of more marginalised countries. He says, frankly, that it's a, a body which, and I paraphrase, is barely fit for purpose. The permanent five wield their veto, act purely in their own political interest, and entirely lack transparency. He says things have got worse and not better. If you agree with that, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I ask you to find the Security Council is ineffective and lacking in transparency and uh, that count one is therefore made out. What about this point that we hear from the prosecution? I don't know if you understood it, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. I didn't. There was some talk about Angola in 1993. I didn't really understand that. There was also talk about the Iraq war and how somehow the pinnacle of the UN success was in fact 1990 to 1991 in Iraq. It's a matter for you, ladies and gentlemen, if you think that's good enough in a 70-year history. But you'll also bear in mind what the witnesses said. Very unlikely if the people in Kosovo would have thought the 1990s was a high point for the UN. And if that's the way the, the defence put their case, I'd ask you to treat it very, very carefully indeed. What about 
sanctions that you've heard so much about. Mr. Ross described the sanctions imposed on Iraq as a disgrace and a personal shame. You heard the statistics from Mr. Lowenstein about the dramatic increase in child mortality in Iraq. And I'll ask you to bear in mind that when assessing whether or not it can be said the UN has really lived up to its humanitarian purposes or whether, as we say, it has failed entirely to do so. And, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the issue today is whether or not the UN has failed. So the question for you is whether or not the UN has violated um, its own charter in the manner we say it has in the indictment. It's not a question for, for you or indeed for any of us to decide what would happen if it is so guilty. The question of reform is an entirely different question and the question of what will replace it is an entirely different question. The question for you, the prosecution say, is has the UN failed? And we say the answer to that is clearly yes. And Mr Lowenstein, as only a journalist can, if he doesn't mind me saying, described the UN as an old man on Viagra. Matter for you, ladies and gentlemen, but if that's the case, isn't it time for a new model? I ask you to find that the UN has had its day, it's exhausted, it's ineffective, it has failed, and I ask you to convict the UN on all counts before you. Standing up due to fear of weakness. Surely I'll be sitting down. I don't understand. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution has tried to argue that the UN doesn't produce good ideas and that it's a failure of democracy. Not only that, but the prosecution's case also depends on the notion that a world with the UN has more war, more violence, and and contains more harm and death. So what has the UN produced? It's eradicated deadly diseases, saved the lives of millions. It's brought the fog of the battlefield into the sharp analytical lens of the courtroom. In the clash of arms, the laws are not silent, and the courtroom creates the possibility, at least the hope, that as human beings we can learn some lessons from the horrors that we perpetrate on one another. Prosecution, of course, has more to say about international criminal law, and I'll come back to that. Let us look at the assertion that the prosecution's prosecution's case contains. That is, the UN has to be destroyed, not reformed. Don't lose sight of that. That's what they said at the beginning. They have to stick to it. They also have to stick to the logical consequence of that, which is that anything that emerges in its place is not something which would be essentially the same. Despite the rhetoric, despite the colourful allegations, they cannot make out their case without giving you an alternative. No doubt they would wish you to forget this, but their case depends on their candidate for the UNEXIT Secretary-General, and we know who that was. The institution. Flawed as the Security Council may be, as we've heard, frustrating as the General Assembly may be, 
frustrating as the committees may be. The criticism that it is insufficiently inclusive couldn't ever be avoided. Pure representation is nonsense. Decisions would always have to be made. Policies would always have to be implemented. The criticism that it's too dependent on raw economic power, well, the effect of sheer economic power can't be ignored. Decisions on that basis would be made, UN or not. The UN, however, acts as a counterpoint to that kind of power. We, like the UN, agree that it's an outrage that huge numbers of interns who give so much to the UN are unpaid. And it reproduces deeply undesirable hierarchies and much more besides. We agree. This is the fault of states, as you've heard from an early witness. The prosecution knows that its audience include a large number of dynamic, young, aspiring international lawyers, diplomats and politicians. This aspect of their case is a cynical ploy and an insult to your intelligence. (laughs) War. Despite its efforts and its successes in saving human beings from suffering, the prosecution wants you to believe that the UN has caused more war. Let's be clear about the allegation that an entity with a specific foundational aim of reducing war, or an entity that has provided peacekeeping forces on myriad occasions in the last half century, often unarmed, in some of the most dangerous situations that the world has seen since the end of Second World, world War II, that that entity has caused more armed conflict and more war. The prosecution attributes harm done through conflict in Libya to resolutions on the responsibility to protect, whilst also arguing that the UN fails to follow big ideas. It's vital to distinguish between ideas and their application, not because policies shouldn't be judged, sorry, not because institutions shouldn't be judged on their policies, but because for the prosecution to make out its case, it would have to show structural flaws in the UN. In short, without the UN, or something that looks very much like it, we'd be in a situation where there was no institution that exists across borders. And the lesson from history is that raw, unabridged state sovereignty is a license to kill. On sanctions, looking beyond war, one of the other ways in which the UN has sought to reduce the harm done in a violent, conflict-ridden world is the imposition of sanctions. The varying success of measures of that type can be debated. Of course they can. But does that indicate a structural flaw in the UN? Of course it does not. The only real candidate for such a structural critique would be a failure to reform. And as against the rest of the world, the UN did exactly that with sanctions. Finally, international criminal law. The prosecution argues that it's wrong to blame individuals. Because crime, they say, international crime, is the result of deep structural problems in global political economy. Well, of course it is. But then all crimes are the result, to some extent, of structural problems in society. The prosecution argues that case selection is unfair or wrong or flawed. But in reality, cases are selected from societies that have fallen apart. But even then, case selection has evolved into 
a system which has gone from imposition in the form of Security Council resolutions in the ICTY to subsidiarity with complementarity in the International Criminal Court. The prosecution has even suggested that international criminal law has failed because crimes still happen. That's the prosecutor that's alleging that, and they do it without a trace of irony. We need to get real. In conclusion, don't be distracted, members of the jury. You can convict only if you would abolish the UN. And don't be fooled. This is not a trial of particular policies, whether responsibility to protect or anything else. It's not a trial of particular secretary-generals that you might not like. And it's not a trial of particular events, whether Rwanda or Syria or Srebrenica. Not a single one of these witnesses supports this insane prosecution, and neither should you. Thank you. Well, members of the jury, I'm going to um, sum up very briefly. I think we, we can all agree we've had a very stimulating uh, debate with four excellent uh, presentations and uh, very precise questions. W what I'm going to suggest in relation to the indictment is, is simply this, that you should consider each count separately because they're not the same. You shouldn't apply too high a standard of proof. I mean, this, this is all good fun. It's not a criminal trial. Um, so, so decide it on the balance of probabilities or something like that and take a majority vote on, on each count. Um, also, I think you should probably decide this on the evidence you've heard rather than your own personal opinions because you're supposed to be unbiased and impartial. Uh, what I would, I'll make two just general points about the charge and about perhaps one overarching theme. I mean, it's been, been said that you, you should only convict if you would abolish the UN. I, I think that's probably putting it a bit high in relation to my understanding of some of the counts. Maybe a better way of looking at it is, has the UN fallen so far short of its ideals and objectives that it should be indicted by you. So I, that, that may be a, a fair way of looking at it. The, the second general point is, I, I did say look at each count separately, but how much evidence have we heard in relation to some of the counts? We, we have rather focused on, on the, the big issues, quite understandably, but some of the counts there's not much evidence. And I said I make two points. In fact, I've got... Three, it's, is it not very difficult here to disentangle what the UN does or fails to do, on the one hand, with what powerful nations or member states fail to do or do, on the other hand? Um, I think one needs to grapple with, with that point. Where would we be without the UN, where are we with the UN? But is, is it not possible that there are two, possibly three, um, world powers out there which effectively drive everything? But, but that's just a personal view. If, if you don't like anything I say, of course, you'll ignore that. So on, on that happy note, um, you're going to retire, and I think you, you, you've got about... 25, 30 minutes to, to reach some highly awaited decisions.
Right. Okay. Thank you very much. If the the jury will now retire. Uh, I know for a fact that at least a couple of members of the jury have been tweeting during the proceedings. Un under any other circumstances, that would have been contempt of court. But uh, we, we turn a blind eye on such things here. Uh, right. Okay. Um, we'll open this to the floor. Uh, those of you who uh, want to go, because we're running a bit uh, late, which we are, and uh, thank you very much to, to all of you for your patience. Thank you very much to, to Khan for staying with us. Uh, now, please identify yourselves when you ask your question, and by that I mean just give us a name. Uh, I don't want you to go on a journey of self-discovery or anything. Um, please keep your questions brief so that we can uh, squeeze in as many as, uh, as possible, and tell us whether you'd like to address them to uh, any one of our guests in particular, or whether you want to address them to um, everyone. And please wait for the microphone to come uh, to you because of the recording and also because otherwise Khan will not be able to, to hear you. Uh, so, okay, lady here with the scarf. I'll group the questions in three, so. Thank you. That was very interesting, um, but it's left me with a. Thank you very much. Close enough? Or do I need to lick it? Um, so, one of, the, one of the complaints about the, the United Nations seems to be that it hasn't had the balls to tackle the permanent members of the Security Council. It might almost seem that we have failed to tackle um, those same powers. And I wonder whether we might not have had a, an even livelier debate if we'd actually had the permanent members of the Security Council on trial here rather than the complex organization that is the United Nations. And given that the majority of the, those permanent members either have acknowledged or are very strongly implicated in the bombing of medical facilities in Afghanistan, Syria, and Yemen in very recent months. I think there's a very real case, is there not? Thank you. Thank you very much. Any more questions for this? Yes, please. Hello. Thank you all for um, all the different points of view this evening. Um, could, you, could you tell us your name? Oh, I, I forgot to enforce sorry. that rule with the previous speaker. But it's, no, it's fine. Don't worry. It's too late now. But, <laughs> <laughs> okay, my name's Techie Quay, um, and at the end, Paul, you said that we need to get real, um, and it was also mentioned by the defence that the UN functions on a very small budget. Um, my, my thoughts go to um, Rwanda, and not specifically the genocide, but the International Criminal Tribunal that um, came afterwards, and it closed just a few months ago, um, and apparently it spent $2 billion, 60 convictions, um, and then I go to what Khan Ross said about we need, the test is what the people think. Do you think the people of Rwanda felt satisfied by that amount of money spent and the 60 convictions for all those lives lost? Okay, let's start with these two then. Uh, who would like to have a go first? There are the very expensive... Uh, You're absolutely right that the tribunals are super expensive and uh, the people of Rwanda may have a very sharp perspective on that. Uh, but there are the very cheap operations of the United Nations as well and one notable example being the special procedures of the human rights system where people are working... Uh, 
maybe half of their time or two-thirds of their time for six years, and they're doing it for a per diem, a, a miserly per diem, for about uh, six weeks of, of the year. Okay, so there are elements of the United Nations that are very um, expensive, and there are elements that relies on a lot of good faith and a lot of volunteer spirit. So I just wanted to put that as a contrast. I also wanted to take the opportunity to say I should have qualified my 1990s statement to say within the human rights mechanisms. And obviously, you know, the UN being this massive body, I'm not talking about a whole decade and all its operations. If I can deal with the issue of um, indicting the P5, given that there was not in existence an international criminal mechanism, nor had there been agreement on international crimes, it wouldn't have been practical uh, as a pure matter of law, but morally, I would have liked to have seen each and every Security Council ambassador from a P5 country indicted for Srebrenica. That's because they passed a safe area resolution that was incapable of being given effect because they hadn't geographically defined it, they hadn't demilitarized it, etc., etc. Um, so I have a lot of sympathy with that. The problem is the examples you gave, none of them have got anything to do with the UN. So the operation in Kunduz was a US strike that they're in the process of investigating. They've produced a 3,000-page report, which when they finish redacting it, will, whatever's left will be made public. In the case of Yemen, it was a Saudi-led coalition. And in the case of Syria, it's local. So these aren't members of the... It's not members of the P5 in that capacity. It may be members of the P5, but it's as independent sovereign states, not, in that, not as the P5 capacity. Um, first, on the question of, of how much money the UN spends, um, The Guardian recently did some, some research on this and came up uh, with a figure of 500 billion. That's over 70 years. So, roughly 7 billion a year uh, dollars, less than the cost of the, the Olympics here, less than what British people spend on takeaways each year. So, I would put that into context. Also, um, if you look at, say, military spending, $1.6 trillion, fossil fuel subsidies, even more than that. So I do think that in some respects the UN, and maybe not the instance you mentioned, but in other respects the UN is, is value for money. Um, were the P5 on trial, I probably wouldn't have agreed to act for the defense. But I will say a couple of things, uh, not in their defense, but sort of to justify why they were there in the first place. I think it's very difficult to imagine um, effective maintenance of international peace and security without something that engages the states that are the most powerful and, 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 and equipped to do so. Um, I, you know, a, a security council made up of very small, you know, open-minded Scandinavian states probably wouldn't have the capacity to, uh, to, to deal with the crises um, that arise. And I think the trade-off from that was having this, the veto as an incentive to get them to come on board so that at least they thought, well, if our own national interests are um, affected, then, then we can veto it. Um, that said, there have been occasions where they haven't used the veto even though the national interests have been uh, at stake. China didn't veto the um, Sudan ICC 
a furrow, even though I think at the time Sudan provided it with most of its, with, uh, its oil and it had huge investments in there. And um, the, the number of uh, uses of the veto has actually fallen quite significantly. So 31 resolution, uh, vetoes since 1990 uh, compared with nearly 200 in the period before. So there are some occasions on which the UN is able to take effective action, even in Syria, wasn't able to stop the conflict, but the chemical weapons resolution, I think, is important. Imagine if there are chemical weapons now in the mix on on the ground. Khan, would you like to come in on this? Um, Yeah, I I love the idea of indicting the P5. um, Fantastic. And I love the idea that uh, uh, one of the witnesses just mentioned of holding every ambassador accountable for Srebrenica. That would, uh, that would give them a bit of a jolt. Uh, diplomats need to be held accountable for what they do, including legally accountable. You know, one of the themes running through all the arguments, prosecution and defence, is the total lack of accountability. Sorry? The total lack of accountability... The lack of accountability of diplomats and the international officials... As for the ICTR, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, and indeed the ICTY and the ICC itself, which spent a billion dollars before it secured a single conviction, obviously there's a real problem here about the gross ballooning of costs of these institutions. And indeed, we don't simply know what Rwandans think about the quality of justice delivered by the ICTR because they never get asked. I'd like to see a Security Council session where they are invited and victims of the genocide are invited to give their thoughts about the future of the ICTR and what we can learn about these things. But I must say, having lived in Kosovo after the the war, there is sometimes a need for international justice. The local courts were incapable of delivering justice for the many war crimes committed on both sides during the Kosovo War, and the only way of delivering some justice, even though it wasn't anything like comprehensive or enough, but it was something, and it was important that it be done, indeed, if only for symbolic uh, terms as well as practical. We needed international justice in that, in that context, and I'm not decrying the practice of international justice itself. Okay. No? Gary? Um, if I must, uh, yes. Uh, um, I, I, I think we have a, a, a problem here. I, I'm, gonna, I, I'm in danger of switching sides, I think, but... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I began to feel sorry for the UN by the end of the, uh, by the, end of the debate um, for reasons that have been alluded to already. It's very, very hard to tease out the question of responsibility here. I, I mean, at, at certain points during the debate, we seem to be blaming sovereignty. At other points, we blame the great powers for their obstructive behavior or their interventionist behavior. Sometimes we believe that the Security Council was doing too much, Sometimes we think it's doing too little. At other times, we just seem frustrated by the presence of politics in our lives uh, or the presence of an international political order that is designed in the way it is currently designed. And I think this is deeply problematic. I mean, clearly, we're all frustrated with the current shape of the international order. It's very, very, very difficult to work out what role international criminal tribunals, for example, play in ameliorating uh, that particular problem. I happen to think they sometimes exacerbate it, but that's a whole other debate I could have with Paul over another three-hour session, uh, perhaps tomorrow night. 
so, so I think this is one of the central intellectual questions that we have before us. Precisely how do we attribute responsibility? People are very, very keen on the idea of responsibility and punishment and accountability, but I think there's a limitation or there are limits to the extent to which we can impose these sort of criminal law notions uh, inherited from the domestic sphere in our lives as international diplomats, lawyers, cosmopolitans. Paul, yes, please. Very briefly, if I may. Um, I don't think we're going to disagree too much, to be honest. I'm also in danger of switching sides to some extent here. Um, In relation to... Well, the two questions together... When, when taking aim at the permanent members, it, I think it's, it's, it's great and it's nice to fantasize about the idea when certain people could be stood in a dock helpless, um, listening to everything that they've done to the rest of us. Um, but wh- where are you standing and who, where are you speaking from when, you, when, you're, when you're saying that? There's a, a, a structure to the world which, in the absence of a, of, a, of a highly aggressive form of constitutionalism, which is equally unrealistic, in a form of constitutionalism which would have to be located in the, with its, the top of its hierarchy outside of where economic power is, is cited, that an approach of that type is, just, is nothing more than a fantasy. But that's not for me, for me, for me arguing that it's okay for um, those who have less economic resources to be those that are the target of the international moral judgment. And that leads me on to the second point. I don't think that it's in any way justifiable to have an international criminal system in its current format, which has the budget that it does. And the reason for that is there's a complete lack of clarity as to what its constituency is. From one moment, it's for the victims, for the local, for the transitional justice in that society, and in the next minute, it's for the cosmopolitan global writ large, and nobody actually has any political hold over what's going on with that in any full full. Um, full sense, other than the international organisations themselves. And if that is what international criminal tribunals are operating in service of, I don't think the budget's justifiable at all. Thank you. Uh, Alexandra? Um, Alexandra Zampaki. Um, I'd like to ask uh, the, both the prosecution and the defence about their methodology, or rather their... Uh, Emphasis. So the emphasis has been on um, kind of uh, sparkly events or rather spiky events. So Iraq, we had Iraq, Angola, um, Syria. Um, and, and I was wondering, um, is this the right methodology to, um, um, to reach a conclusion about whether the United Nations um, is effective? So if I turn to um, our um, witnesses, so for example, um, Dr. Ghana, um, I guess in times of um, uh, peace and in areas of peace, um, your expertise on um, freedom of religion, has the United um, Nations um, helped improve freedom of religion? And um, Professor Hampson, um, you talked about the special procedures, and for a lot of us, special procedures um, kind of means um, a study um, and two visits every year and um, um, 30 pages to read that um, kind of most uh, state delegates do not read. Um, so um, do you think that uh, the special proce- procedures um, have been um, effective, have helped the uh, improvement of human rights? Thank you. Okay, do we have any more Another question for now. Uh, yes, the gentleman at the back. The 
best. Yeah. Uh, let me say in the meantime that uh, we seem to have lost the feed from the jury room, so we have no idea what they're up to. Uh, but I, I guess they'll turn up at some point, or, or maybe the feed will come back on. Yeah. Yes, please. Sorry. Yes, I would like to put... Oh, I'm Simpson Schillingford from the West of London. Uh, my issue here is in terms of the first one of the questions earlier, in terms of permanent members and the raw economic economic power of the Western Alliance. The real absence of a real democratic and legal representations for Earth people, that's us siblings on the ground level of, of Mother Earth. And what happens in terms of the least permanent member states who are unable to impose such power as the vetoes and sanctions? With examples of Iraq bombed back to the Stone Age by Americans and Europeans, Britain sanctioning Russia with 60 million population, Russia over 100 million, and pushing this through, and the unfortunate Rwandan situation, a million dead, together with another 4 million in Democratic Republic of Congo. This is hardly liberal or democratic. How is this incredible, dysfunctional, operational situation of something called a United Nations. How reformable is it? It's just not feasible. Explain. Thank you. Uh, okay, who'd like to... Oh, but Khan, would you, would you like to go first on these? Or? No. Okay. <laughs> fair, fair enough. I guess I would just say one thing about the second question. I mean, one of the issues of how less powerful states have been completely shafted by more powerful states, of course, is the issue of climate change. And there's certainly been a great movement in the last 10 years by a lot of smaller states to demand, ask, and this was discussed during the Paris talks in December, of legitimate and appropriate compensation for both the damage that the first world has caused in the rest of the world. So that's a massive amount of money. How you actually calculate that, I'm not entirely sure, but it's a huge amount of money. And secondly, to support financially um, a transition to a far greater, better um, environment where there is fossil fuels, either, well, certainly don't exist in the long run, but a transition to a renewable future. I mean, to me, ultimately... If climate change is viewed as one of the most, if not the most serious issue facing the world, it seems pretty ironic that we have a first world country, that's US, UK, much of the West, who, are, who have shown through consistent policies that they aren't particularly interested in tackling climate change and the Paris talks almost confirm that. And more importantly, that when you have a US president who came into office as President Obama, came into office pledging to do something different on climate change when in fact has massively accelerated the shale gas revolution in America which is environmentally destructive. Now that's not to do with the UN per se at all. However, where it does come into it is if the UN wants to somehow negotiate a global environmental deal and that's what Paris was supposed to be about, you cannot seriously do that without massively compensating countries that have been affected by our behaviour. And when countries like Bolivia and others have talked about asking for appropriate compensation, most of the West laughs in their face. Now, I've got no solution how to fix that, but I think it says a lot about how the West <laughs> views the rest. And 
Yeah, I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Anthony. Nazila? So, if I may add uh, again to the second question, I don't think the alternative voices uh, that we need to be fostering and encouraging are only other states or smaller states. I think uh, Mr. Ross made the point very well, and um, you know, a number of us are very concerned that it shouldn't only be the voices of the states. So, you know, the non-governmental organizations, the other stakeholders and experts have been critical in putting many thematic issues, many development issues, many migration issues, make, giving it a high enough profile that states are then lobbied and forced and embarrassed into taking action on, on those issues. So I don't think, yes, I think the, the dilemma and the polarization between the key states, the big states, powerful states and the others is one thing, but getting other voices so that there is... Uh, more deliberation and more informed deliberation is, is critical. And I was very taken by Mr. Ross's point about, you know, the people affected most. That's where the voices should be heard most and weight should be given to that. Um, and they know best. I mean, if we're still living in this arrogant age of we know best from outside from our ivory towers and people don't understand their own context, that they shouldn't be consulted. Sometimes we do consultation now for development projects, but in a tokenistic kind of way. We've moved some way, but not far enough. Um, as to the first uh, point, um, uh, yes, I think in, if we take freedom of religion or belief as one human rights matter, well, has the UN been most effective in preventing, in promoting, or protecting? Prevention is always hard to prove because we see all the cases of the violations continuing. Uh, but definitely, I think when one zones in on particular examples, certainly the excesses have been reduced. There has been a moderation. There has been a stabilization of violations, if not an elimination. And the problem is, when you have an intransigent state insisting on violating particular rights, it's part of their national project and vision, and it's part of uh, how they see themselves, then no amount of shaming and shedding the spotlight will necessarily change it. It may make it more costly, but ultimately it is up to that state to decide to, you know, not continue discriminating A, B, or C. In terms of protection, again, it, it shares some of those dilemmas. In terms of promotion, yes, it's, uh, the UN has been fantastically successful in continuing to insist on the standards it adopted in the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and in the ICCPR 50 years ago and the, the norms and standards that have developed since but there's not always the ear, the listening ear. If I can deal with the uh, second question first, I think we need to remember a lesson of history, and that's a lesson from the League of Nations, where you did have each state represented individually and without any sort of protection by something like a veto. And the answer is it doesn't work, because states that see themselves at the moment an institution has created as being particularly powerful, whatever you mean by that, are going to want some form of acknowledgement of it. You get that also in the financial institutions where the amount your vote counts for depends on the amount of your contribution. So I think one's got to be realistic about the decisive player, i.e. the Security Council, but that doesn't mean that there's no room for change. I think it means that there's no point in thinking in terms of saying, well, let's scrap the General Assembly as being representative of states, let's instead have representative of nations. There are other ways in which you can tinker with things. Um, for example, on the issue of listening to people, you can institutionalize their right to be heard. 
Uh, to some extent, that happens with some bodies where if you've got ECOSOC status, then you can make interventions. You can't guarantee it will have an effect, but you could say that in certain circumstances you couldn't reach a decision without there having been consultation. One thing I, I would like to see considered is thinking of the precedent of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, which is an indirectly elected body. It's uh, representatives from member states' parliaments in proportion to uh, the number of seats they hold. Maybe you could say that half of any state's delegation in the General Assembly would have to consist of parliamentarians. In other words, not just professional diplomats, but people who claim to be talking on behalf of their people. So I think there are ways in which progress could be made which don't require the complete overturning of the institution. On the issue of special procedures, I think the degree of impact of the different special procedures varies sometimes depending on the mandate, sometimes depending on the mandate holder. I think that they have played a really important role in clarifying the scope of certain rights. That has mattered in different ways in, say, the civil and political rights area as opposed to the uh, economic, social, cultural rights area. So in civil and political rights, it's a matter of, if you like, the depth of penetration of the right. And there, if you think of the contributions of Philip Alston and then Christoph Heinz in their battle with the US over the issue of drones, if we wiped out special procedures, you'd lose that. If you think of the work that the first, I must confess he's a colleague of mine, Paul Hunt, the work that the first mandate holder did on the right to the highest attainable standard of health, He shaped the very way in which you conceptualize the right to health. And that thinking about the mandate has an impact on the treaty bodies uh, where they've got a similar right. On top of that, all you see in the reports is the tip of an iceberg of what happens when they're actually working in country. They tend to pick specific issues. And when they go in, they've got a particular thing they're trying to achieve in the place where they're trying to achieve it. And... They they may not be listened to, but any state dealing with them knows that this is what is concerning them. So, for example, in India, it was the issue of infant mortality. And if you want to be seen to be cooperating, and remember this is a non-coercive tool, so it's in your interest to appear to be cooperating, then you're going to have to say something to them. Um, And if you make undertakings, then... If you don't actually honour them, even though it's not legally binding, you're going to be hauled up for it. So I think the special procedures tend to be neglected because they're not seen as coercive, it's not legally binding, etc. But I think they've got the potential for... They reach places that other mechanisms don't reach. And do remember, it's something I always emphasise when I'm talking to members of armed forces, that the one bit of the UN system you might find in the field is special procedures, crawling around in ditches, investigating things, so that our armed forces need to be aware that they may face special procedures, whereas they're not going to face treaty bodies. Thank you, Francois. I'm sure you will have noticed that the, the jury snuck back in when uh, we weren't uh, looking, so we're ready for the, for the verdict. Now, what I suggest we do is go uh, through the counts one by one, and uh, if you could read them out or summarize them. Well, so we'll hear um, the verdict from the jury, and then we'll take the vote from the audience uh, straight after we hear from the, from the jury. Okay? Well, let, let's go through them one by one. The count one is the United Nations is sclerotic and overly bureaucratic. What's the verdict on that one, please? 
We, the members of the jury, find the defendant not guilty. Ah, well, there you go. How about members of the public? Guilty? <laughs> show of hands, show of hands. Okay, so uh, this, this must be a lot of embittered, unpaid interns here. <laughs> future interns. Not guilty? Uh, that looks pretty guilty, I'm afraid. Okay. Yeah, by majority. Count two, then, please. We find the defendant guilty. Oh. Yeah. So, count two. The, the UN has closed Sorry, war yes. with legitimacy. That's the one. Guilty? Oh, okay. Not guilty? Yeah. Oh, there's a lot of abstention. Oh, well, guilty. Well. We're, getting, we're getting the drift of this. Count three. This is the one of United Nations is, is anti-human rights, basically and is responsible for grave violations thereof. Where, where we stand on that one? Not guilty. Not guilty, okay. Not go- yes. <laughs> so, has, has the UN facilitated a post-rights world? Guilty? <laughs> okay, one, one lone voice. N- no, not guilty? Oh. Okay, well, not guilty on this one. Yes, okay. well, that, that, I think there wasn't much evidence about that one. Count, count four, this is... This is war tri- crimes tribunals and arbitrary selection of, of defendants, possibly on a racist basis. Where, where, what do you think of that? So he made this decision on a, uni- on a unanimous basis and found the defendant guilty. Guilty. Oh, mm. well. So the audience, guilty? Yeah, well, I'm not even going to ask who thinks it's not guilty. Yeah, yeah it's in the jury. Oh, <laughs> okay, one dissenting voice. And, well, the final count is... Uh, and the last one is, 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 is the one all about poverty, death, child mortality, and anything else you might care to mention. What, what so we were also it? unanimous in our decision here, and we found the defendant not guilty. Not guilty, no. Right. And how about the audience? Who thinks the UN is guilty of that charge? Not guilty? Well, guilty it is on that charge, then. Listen, thank you all so much for being here. Uh, thank you very much to Bradley Barlow, who organized the, the whole thing. Uh, did a fantastic job.